This is Skywave Audio Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. At the age of 25, John Daner worked as an animator at Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, worked on some major films, including Fantasia. During the next 45 years, he became better known as the actor in at least 126 feature films. He also became one of the most versatile and sought-after actors in radio and TV. Before he became Paladin on radio, he was the frontier gentleman, working with a lot of actors who would be regulars on Have Gun, Will Travel. As J.P. Kendall, correspondent for the London Times, Daner rode through the Montana Territory in that eventful year of 1876, hoping to interview Sitting Bull. In the episode at hand, he gets too close for comfort. From February 23rd, 1958, this is Frontier Gentleman with Kendall's Last Stand. Sooner or later, every man meets his Waterloo, even in Montana Territory. At the time Colonel Custer was meeting his, I very nearly met mine. Frontier Gentlemen. Herewith, an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual stories. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territories. Now starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. I had received permission to accompany a troop of soldiers and packers up the Yellowstone to the mouth of Rosebud Creek and through the kindness of a Lieutenant Snow in charge of the supply depot, I'd found quarters aboard the river steamer far west. There was an air of expectancy about. A scout had brought news that the main concentration of the Sioux Army had been sighted somewhere between the Rosebud and the Bighorn. It was Lieutenant Snow who informed me. Well, they've sent Custer in the 7th, Mr. Kendall. We'll see an end to it now. He'll finish the Sioux. I wish I had known. I'd like to have gone with him. Well, maybe Custer will bring back Sitting Bull or a crazy horse. You'll be able to have your interviews. <laughs> I've about given up hope. Oh, don't worry. If they're still alive when the colonel's through with them, you'll get your chance. Glad to hear it. Oh, they should have let Custer attack the Sioux a long time ago. Well, now you'll see. He'll massacre them. Lieutenant. Oh, how are you, Mr. Kendall? Well, thank you, Captain. Lieutenant, just got word there are civilians up at Castle Butte. I haven't got anybody else for the job, so you'll have to do it. Bring them in, Captain? Yes. We haven't had any reports of enemy movement in that area, but watch yourself. I can't spare you more than four men and a crow scout. Now, if you do run into hostiles, turn back. Don't engage them. That's in order, Snow. Yes, sir. And the civilians? Well, that's their lookout. They were ordered in a month ago. If you can get them out safely, good. If not, don't risk the lives of your men. There's been enough heroics around here. I won't risk the lives of the men, sir. Very sensible. See that you don't. Now, 
You'll leave immediately, and the location is here. You better cross west to Porcupine Creek and then head north. Uh, Captain Thomas, I, I wonder, if Lieutenant Snow has no objection, may I go with him? Well, I don't suppose there's any reason why you shouldn't. Snow? Fine with me, sir. I thought you'd want to be here, Mr. Kendall, when the conquering hero returns. Make an interesting story for your London Times. I beg your pardon? Oh, we'll be back in time, Mr. Kendall. Captain Thomas is referring to Colonel Custer. Oh. The young lieutenant and I don't see eye to eye about the colonel. No, we don't, sir. Well, it's a matter of opinion. I won't bore you with mine, Mr. Kendall. Uh, Snow, he'll issue a horse and a rifle to Mr. Kendall and see that he signs for them. Yes, sir. Good luck. There are times when it's hard to remember rank. The trouble with him is he's not West Point. He resents anybody else who is. Well, you've just had a good look at professional jealousy, Kendall. Odd. I wouldn't have thought that of the captain. Oh, pretty obvious, isn't it? Come along. We'd better get going. You see, the captain thinks it was a mistake to send Custer after the Sioux. Oh, uh, why? Well, our military genius is of the opinion that Custer's a bad soldier. Out for personal gain, that he's too impetuous, that it'll make a mess of things. Uh, of course, there's also the incidental point that Thomas is a captain, two years older than Custer, who's a colonel. And uh, that's where I say the trouble <laughs> is. When I was in the army in India, I had an officer who affected me that way. He was a colonel, too. Dreadful old blunderbuss. <laughs> I was positive I knew more than he did. Well, did you? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. He ordered us to attack a Sikh stronghold. There must have been 2,000 tribesmen, and we had about 400 lancers. I suggested it might be a mistake, and he nearly died of apoplexy. I somehow wish he had. Only 30 of us got out of that mess alive. Our destination was some 15 miles north and west of the mouth of Rosebud Creek. There were seven of us. Lieutenant Snow, Sergeant Wilson, three troopers, and a Crow Indian scout with the intriguing name of Six Toes. Intriguing because, as far as I could determine, he had only five on each foot. We had traveled fast without incident when the scout brought us to a halt. Smoke over hill near Castle Butte. Any sign of Sioux or Cheyenne? Have been passing this way. Maybe small party, seven, eight. Sergeant? How long ago, Six Toes? Walk a mile, maybe less. He means 20 minutes or less. Ah. Sir? Six Toes says there's a sign of the enemy, Wilson. Smoke just over the hill. Now, they may have attacked the party we're looking for. Stay here and keep your eyes open. I'm going to ride up the hill and take a look. Yes, sir. Uh, I'd, I'd like to come along. All right, Kendall. Six Toes, you too. Here. Can't see what it's coming from. Trees are in the way. Well, if it's a raiding party, we might still get them. See that canyon to the left? We could ride through there. Well, nasty place for an ambush, though. Well, worth the chance. We'd come up under cover of the trees. Not good place if Sue got big party waiting. No reason why they should. There haven't been any reports of any big war parties up here. Probably a few renegades. Sergeant Wilson? Now look here, old boy. <laughs> 
It was none of my business, but four men in those rocks could hold off a small army. Wouldn't it be safer to take the direct approach? Open country? You'd stand a better chance. Mr. Kendall, I don't know how you fought in India, but over here, surprise tactics are the only way. Beat the Indian at his own game, outguess him. Yes, very sound. When you can do it. What is it, Lieutenant? You see that canyon, Sergeant? We're going through. If the Sioux are where the smoke is, we'll take them by surprise, wipe them out. Oh, you hear that? Settlers are holding them off. Kendall, you want to stay here? We'll pick you up on our way back. I think I'd rather come along. Don't want to miss the fun. We rode down the hill toward the narrow canyon. Lieutenant Snow sitting erect in his saddle, eyes sparkling with excitement, a smile on his lips. I had seen such a look before in young subalterns going into their first battle, unafraid, not knowing. Up together! The mouth of the canyon drew closer. The shadows reached out to us. Then we were in it, the walls looming on either side. I didn't look back. I knew from the sound of that first volley what had happened. And when I emerged from the canyon, there was only one other man a short distance behind me. It was the Crow Indian scout. Go around the trees! Don't go through! Yeah. Now take a look. See if anyone's alive in there. I'll try the smaller cabin. Where are the others? I... We didn't expect to find anyone alive. I saw you on the hill. Fired the shots. I was afraid you'd go away. We'd better go inside. All burned in other cabin. He's an Indian. He's not coming in. Six Toes is a crow scout for the army. A friend. I heard shooting in the canyon. Did the soldiers kill them? I'm afraid not. We were the only ones to escape. They saw you. That's why they left. Now they'll come back. How many were there? Seven. To begin with. We killed two. Well... Not so bad. You should be able to defend us quite nicely, I think. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Six toes. I'm going out to the horses to get the rest of the ammunition and our canteens. Cover me from the window. Oh, there, ho. Oh, boy. Quiet. Quiet, boy. 
There. I'm sorry. That was a very foolish thing to do. I'm all right now. Good. I've got a gun and ammunition. I know how to shoot. Couldn't be better. Six toes, keep watch where you are. The lady and I will take this side. My name is Amelia Mitchell. How do you do? I'm J.B. Kendall. Did... Did you see a little boy out there? In the other cabin? No, but perhaps he... He was in there. With my brother and the other men. They were putting up a stockade when the Indians started to shoot. I was in here getting some nails. I saw what happened through the window. It was so quick. Then there was the fire. And the cries. I hope he died before the fire. Your boy? My son. Ten years old. It's not... Right, is it? No, it's not right. You, tall man. Yes? Indians coming, Cheyenne. See them through trees. Where? Wait, you see. There. All right. Now don't waste shots. We'll wait for them to come out into the open. moment, we return to Frontier Gentlemen. Do you have questions on satellites, Davis Cup teams, a new medical technique? Answer, please, with Walter Cronkite as your answer. Hear him every weekday evening on most of these stations. And send your questions to Answer, Please, CBS Radio, New York 22, New York. That's Answer, Please, CBS Radio, New York 22, New York. And now we return you to Anthony Ellis' production of Frontier Gentlemen. waited for the Cheyenne to come out into the clearing, away from the cover of the trees, but they didn't. Neither did we get a chance for a decent shot at them. The sun began to go down. Shadows lengthened. In the little cabin, a shaft of pale sunlight poured through a crack in the heavy shutters. It was very warm. Amelia Mitchell, possibly 35. Rather tall, her face glistening in the heat, the Winchester rifle held firm in her broad hands. I was suddenly and unaccountably very conscious of her. They must be waiting for nightfall. Possibly. Anything on your side, Sextos? Nothing moves. You're English, aren't you? Hmm? Uh, yes. Where did you go to school, Oxford? <laughs> As a matter of fact, it was Cambridge. Oh. Disappointed? No. I thought it would be Oxford. If my boy had lived, I would have liked him to go to Oxford or Harvard. One of those fine colleges. Strange talking about him now. As though he'd been gone a long time. I suppose I never did have him, really. Not really. Was your... 
husband in the other cabin? No. I've never been married. I came out here with my brother. He thought it would be best for... for us, my boy and me. Best to make a new life. Oh, well, I... You don't have to be embarrassed now that the boy is gone. I'm glad to talk about it. I was a school teacher. After the war, I met a man. He was a returning hero. It was lonely. I never saw him again after that one time. You could have married. No. A decent man wouldn't have wanted that. Well, for me, there was somebody in England. I suppose not quite the same thing, but... Now she married somebody else. I think I felt very much the same way as you did. It was a mistake. It's funny, you and me, you and I, talking like this. What were you doing here? My brother and the others were in partnership, mining. We thought we might have found a rich vein. Well, when this is over, you'll be very rich. Do the things, see what you've always wanted to, go to Europe, England... (gasps) Snow. They are. I know. There's nothing we can do. Better go back to your post. Soon dark comes, tall man. Maybe then they attack. He's not good thing to hear. That's a pretty good reason why they're doing it. Are you afraid? I am a crow. I'm not afraid of noise. I know what Cheyennes do. Of this I am afraid. We'll try a diversion. Might bring them out. And no more than three rounds each. Fire between the trees. Perhaps one of us will be lucky enough to hit poor old Snow. It was no good. I knew that with darkness they would come. There would be no moon. They would wait and then set fire to the cabin. If we tried to run out, it would be mercifully quick. A bullet. Nothing more. I'm not sure what it was that made me decide. The sight of the woman standing next to me or the sound of Lieutenant Snow's agony. But suddenly I knew what had to be done. Look here. We can wait until they burn us out, or we can do something. Six Toes, will you go out there with me? We are two against them. Woman, no good. She will stay here. I'm not afraid to die, as my father has done fighting Cheyenne, but would like to take one scalp with me, Torment. In a few... In a few minutes, it should be dark enough. If we can get out of here without them seeing us. And no rifles. We'll take our pistols... But I don't want to use them unless we absolutely have to. Hatchet. And knife, quietly. Is good. Now the back window. Then cut around behind them in the trees. They not think white man will do this. I hope not. Woman fires into trees many times while we go. Yes, and uh, keep it up for a minute or two. Give us a chance to get out out there. All right. I think you know what to do if we don't come back, Miss Mitchell. I know. Goodbye, Mr. Kendall. Start firing. (laughs) 
Wait. Oh, the poor Walla. Quietly now, six toes. Mm, you make good Indian. Won't be long now, Snow. Won't be long. I can see two of them. Standing over the lieutenant. Another over there, behind high bush. Yes, that three. Where's the other two? All right, stay here. I'll get the chappy at the bush. You bring back scalp. And the civilized devil, of course not. Your turn, dear fellow. Two more and we can use our guns. There? Huh? Where? Two near trees, looking out to cabin. Ah. Come on. We'll never get across the clearing without them seeing us. Can you throw the hatchet? Very good at throwing. You watch. Together. One... Two, three. Oh, blast, fine bloody aim you've got. Quick. Barely see them now. Shoot, and for Lord's sake, don't miss. Shoot. Six toes got three scalps that night. We carried Lieutenant Snow back to the cabin. That he was still alive was a miracle. It would have perhaps been better had he been dead. Amelia Mitchell did what she could for him, but he died in the early morning. When we returned to the Rosebud the next day, the Battle of Little Bighorn was over. As Lieutenant Snow had predicted, it had been a massacre. Custer's troops had been wiped out. Those other wounded under Major Reno's command were being carried aboard the riverboat, the far west. I stood with Miss Mitchell and Captain Thomas, watching the wounded being carried aboard. Where will they take them, Captain Thomas? Downriver to the hospital. Doesn't seem possible. Two of my best friends were with Custer. Porter, Sturgis, both gone. I'm sorry. It was a mistake. A terrible mistake. Yes. I imagine it was. Uh, you and Miss Mitchell will go with the wounded? Uh, Miss Mitchell will. I'll see you on board. You're not going? No, I don't think so. I see. And, uh, and you? I'll be able to help at the hospital. Then sooner or later there'll be a school out here. I'll teach again. Oh, you'll get married. There'll be other children besides those in your school. I don't know. What about you? I'll be sending my story to the London Times, then I'll go north. There's a town called Fort Benton. I hope we shall meet again, Mr. Kendall. I hope so, Miss Mitchell. Well, you'd better go aboard now. Good luck.
Goodbye. Frontier Gentleman was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Clark Gordon, Lawrence Dobkin, and Jack Moyles. Music was composed and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Eventual success of the fight for freedom depends upon our getting the truth to people behind the Iron Curtain. If the spark to freedom is to stay alive, Radio Free Europe must remain on the air. You can help keep it there by contributing your truth dollars now to Crusade for Freedom. Just send your contribution to Crusade for Freedom in care of your local postmaster. Join us again next week for another report from the Frontier Gentlemen. Dan Coverley speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. John Daner is J.B. Kendall, the frontier gentleman in Kendall's Last Stand. It was first broadcast on February 23, 1958. And 1958 was the only year of that well-produced series. Also in there, Jack Moyles, better known as Rocky Jordan in his own series. And one of the great radio and TV actors, Jeanette Nolan. At the end of that year, 1958... Daner would take on the role of Paladin, probably his signature radio role, and just about his last, I suppose. Fibber McGee and Molly are next, and this is Skywave Audio Theater. Several prominent radio couples came from vaudeville in the 1930s, George Burns and Gracie Allen, Fred Allen, no relation, and Portland Hoffa, and Jim and Marion Jordan a.k.a. Fibber McGee and Molly. In their 20-plus years on the air, Fibber McGee and Molly developed some routines and characters that became so established uh, that audiences would anticipate their taglines, and you'll probably hear that in this episode. Molly was always the steadying influence on the impulsive, temperamental, self-aggrandizing Fibber. And she still got some of the punchlines and slid gracefully into the role of the little girl next door, as she does in this week's episode. You can also expect Harlow Wilcox to slide gracefully into a plug or two for Johnson's Wax. In this episode of February 26, 1946, Fibber McGee and Molly. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> The makers of Johnson's Wax Products for home and industry present Fibber McGee and Molly with Bill Thompson, B. Benaderet, Arthur Q. Bryan, and they call me Harlow Wilcox. The script is by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie, and the music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra.
You know, I get a real kick out of seeing someone use a wax polish for the first time. Because the minute they wax a chair or table and see that wonderfully rich, gleaming, wax-polished luster, they simply can't wait to wax polish all the rest of their home. I think you'll be that way, too. And here's why. For one thing, your floors, when wax-protected, have a rich, mellow beauty that sets off your furnishings to full advantage. Then Johnson's Wax brings out the beautiful, natural grain of things like tabletops and gives them a truly gorgeous, sunshiny luster. Furniture glows and sparkles handsomely. Leather articles and picture frames have that rich, tasteful, well-preserved look. In fact, when wax polished with Johnson's Wax, your whole house shines and sparkles as it never sparkled before. Protected against dirt, wear, and spilled things. I hope you'll try it. You'll be really pleased if you do. Genuine Johnson's Wax, liquid paste or cream. Valentine's Day has come and gone. Lincoln and Washington have had their birthdays. In fact, it might as well be spring. Which is about the time the squire of Wistful Vista starts writing his Christmas thank you notes, urged on by his conscience, otherwise known as Mrs. McGee. And here about to start the job, we find Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> Now, the first note you ought to write, dearie, is I one... haven't got to that yet. I've got to write a check first. Whom to? The Elks Club. Five bucks. Heavenly days. Have you ripped the billiard table cloth again? Nope. The caretaker's got to have appendicitis operation and can't afford it, so all the members are chipping in five bucks apiece. Oh, yeah. well, that's very nice, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, say, is the caretaker that big fat man named Joe? <laughs> yeah, that's the fellow, Charlie. <clears throat> Doc Gamble's going to do the operation. <laughs> I never knew Dr. Gamble to wait till somebody had enough money before he'd operate. Oh, Doc, don't care. But the boys at the club say they hate to see a pot open without a few chips on the table. <laughs> now, let me see. Where's my... Uh-oh. What's the matter? Can't find my fountain pen. You see my fountain pen? The one with a solid gold point onto it? No, I haven't, Pat. You had it yesterday, though. My gosh, I'd hate to lose that fountain pen. Fred Nittany gave me that pen. Who? Fred Nittany. You've heard me speak of Fred Nittany from Star Rock, Illinois. He's the guy that I and he used to have a vaudeville act together in Vaudeville. Oh, sure, that Fred Nittany. Mm -hmm. Did he give you the pen for Christmas? No, he gave me that pen in 1922. We signed our first contract with that pen. Oh, with the Orpheum Circuit? No, no, just with each other. I... <laughs> I promised I wouldn't sneeze while he was juggling, and he promised not to mug while I was singing Give the Baby a Lacing, Mother. He just threw another shoe. <laughs> that was one of my... Oh, hello, old-timer. Everything's fine, thank you. Yeah, except I seem to have lost a very valuable fountain pen. Lost a what, Johnny? I lost a fountain pen, eh? That's too bad. I'd let you take mine, but I haven't got one. <laughs> well, this pen of mine has got a lot of sentimental value to me, old-timer. My old vaudeville partner gave me it. Your old what, Johnny? My old Gee vaude... willikers, were you in vaudeville, Johnny? <laughs> so was I. Well, were you really, old-timer? What kind of an act did you have? Magic, daughter. Used to saw a lady in half, but I couldn't stand it very long. Why not? Hey! I says, why couldn't Well, sir, every time I'd see my assistant off stage, he'd kind of laugh and say, Who was that lady I sawed with you last night? <laughs> I got so sick of that joke, I give up the act and joined the CBs. That was right after Pearl Harper. You mean Pearl Harbor? No, Pearl Harper, daughter. She was the girl I saw it in half. She 
took on so much weight, it stretched my act ten minutes, on her in two. I had a song and dance act myself, old-timer. Yeah, the only way I can get my husband to dance even now is to pay him for it. <laughs> That's pretty good, daughter, but that ain't the way I heard it. The way I heard it, one feller says to his doctor, Say, he says, every time I eat strawberries, my skin breaks out. Can you cure me? I don't know, says the doctor. I hate to make any rash promises. <laughs> mm. Well, I hope you find your pants, Doctor. <laughs> McGee, where'd you use your fountain pen last? I know I had it yesterday when I was making out my income tax. Hey, what was I wearing yesterday? Let me see. Your blue serge suit. I was? Yeah. Oh, well, my gosh, all I got to do is run upstairs and look in the best pocket. I no, always... no, McGee. Huh? Your blue serge suit went to the cleaner this morning. What? With my fountain pen in it? Yeah. Didn't you go through the pockets before you sent it? Well, Natch, I always do. <laughs> but I didn't see anything in your fountain pen. May have slipped down through the lining, though. Doggone those cleaners anyway. Deliberately walking out of here with my blue serge suit with my fountain pen in it. That's practically burglary. That's what it is. That's stealing. Oh, for goodness they... sakes. Now, if they find it, they'll return it. They're very reliable people. Well, they better find it. That's all I got to say. Walking into people's houses like that and practically stealing people's valuable gold-pointed fountain pens that Fred Nittany give them. If that's the way people are running their business nowadays, I'm glad I'm not living a hundred years from now if it gets any worse. <laughs> now, nonsense, dear. You're making a big fuss about nothing. Uh... You fly off the handle like a 30-cent hammer. I'm going to fly down to that cleaning place and make them return my fountain pen. Get your hat and coat, baby. I'll just do that little thing, McGee. Uh Even if you don't find your fountain pen, the fresh air will cool you off a little. Yeah. Now, you lock up the house whilst I get my... Okay, betcha. Make it snappy. I'll have (laughs) them... Ah, there goes a good kid. How she ever puts up with these nasty moods of mine, I'll never know. Except that she knows they never last more than a half hour. (laughs) Once a week. Usually Tuesdays. But even so, I... Come in. Hi, mister. Oh, hello there, Keeney. <laughs> State your business briefly now, sis, because I'm very busy right now. i got to get downtown. Oh. Well, gee, mister, I didn't come over here because I wanted to. I came because you told me to. What? You told me to come over yesterday, remember? No, I don't. Well, you did, I betcha. What were the circumstances? Well, the circumstances were I saw you in the drugstore, mm. and Mr. Toops was weighing himself, and you got on the scale with him and divided the weight by two so you wouldn't have to pay another penny. Mm. And I said you were cheating the drugstore man. You said, don't be nosy, and if I came over today, you'd tell me a story. Those were the circumstances. Well, I'm sorry, sis. I haven't got time today. Maybe some other time. Okay. I... Okay, I'll tell. I'll tell everybody. Uh, I'll tell the drugstore men and the newspapers okay, and I'll okay, tell... Okay, 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 okay. Cut it out. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. Hmm. Thanks, mister. You're awful nice to little children. <laughs> okay. I ever tell you about Myrtle the turtle? Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, sir, once upon a time there lived a turtle named Myrtle. Mm-hmm. She laid dozens and dozens of eggs, and they all hatched out into little baby turtles, so everybody called her Myrtle the Fertile Turtle. (laughs) One day there was a big earthquake, which threw Myrtle over on her back. And when a turtle gets through on its back, it's just simply helpless. Um... Yes, sir. (laughs) 
Well, sir, the baby turtles were too dumb to know what to do. They thought Mama was just taking some exercises, so they hung around and watched while she kicked her legs this way and that, jerking and twitching. And she made so much commotion that some turtle hunters saw her and grabbed her and all the young turtles and sold them all to a restaurant, and they all wound up as turtle soup. And you know what that all goes to prove, sis? Sure I do, I betcha. What? Just because you're upset about something, you don't have to get everybody else in a stew. <laughs> right. Billy Mills and the orchestra and three little words. Let's get down to that dry cleaners. I'm going to read them fountain pen stealers a riot act. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if they'd planned this whole thing. Just waiting for a chance to get my gold-pointed fountain pen. I'll bet you're right, McGee. Bet you. Yes, sir. I'll bet they invested $50,000 in that dry cleaning plant 19 years ago with the very idea in mind of someday getting a hold of your $5 fountain pen. (laughs) Well, that ain't so silly. How about the time I left my wallet and my gray pants with $17 in it? How about that? Well, how about it? They returned it the next day, didn't they? Sure they did. And why? Just to keep me from getting suspicious, that's why. Oh. <laughs> if they're out after fountain pens, they ain't going to money around with mere monkey. I mean, monkey around with mere money. Bye, George. If... Looks like we wouldn't be leaving for a minute, McGee. Come in. Hello, Molly. Hello there, Dr. Gamble. Come right in. Thank you. And what are you looking so sour about, persimmon puss? <laughs> You'd look sour, too, Aerosmith, if somebody had deliberately stole your solid gold-pointed fountain pen that had been given to you by Fred Nittany from Starved Rock. Not really stolen, Doctor. He left it in a suit that went to the cleaner, he thinks. Better be careful of those accusations, chowderhead. Or one of these days, you're going to be the surprised possessor of a slander suit with two pairs of pants. Incidentally, who's Fred Nittany, if anybody? Why, Fred Nittany's his old vaudeville partner, Doctor. He gave McGee the fountain pen years ago. Vaudeville? Were you in Vaudeville, McGee? I used to go to the theater every week when I was a young man going to medical school. I don't remember seeing you. So what? I don't remember seeing you either. (laughs) Well, the 15-cent seats were usually so far back. Oh, I almost forgot, McGee. Forgot what, Captain Happy? (laughs) 
Are you coming to the board meeting at the Elks tonight? Only 10 or 12 left. I can't make it, Doc. I'm sorry. You take six for me, will you? I'll pay you later. Okay. Good night, Molly. Night. Good night. Take six of what for you, McGee? What kind of a board meeting is it? Punch board. Oh. <laughs> hey, we got to get down to the dry cleaners, Molly. Every minute we waste is more time for them burglars to hide the evidence. Come on, let's go. Bye, George. Now, just a minute, McGee. Are you sure you left it in that suit? Have you looked around the house thoroughly? No, and I don't have to. I always carry that pen in that blue serge suit. On account of it leaks a little, and the blue serge suit don't show it. And furthermore... Hello, folks. I just thought I'd drop... Oh, you're going out? Down to the dry cleaners, Mr. Wilcox. They have a suit of McGee's in which he thinks he left a valuable to nobody but him fountain pen. The intrinsic value is of no import. It's the sentimental value, Junior. My old vaudeville partner, Fred Nittany, from Starved Rock, Illinois, gave me that pen. He thinks more of his pen than the government does of Alcatraz, Mr. Wilson. Well, <laughs> you know how sentimental all these old vaudevillians are, Molly. I was an actor once, and I know. What do you mean, once? <laughs> You're so hammy right now, you use mustard-flavored shaving cream. Oh. <laughs> now, McGee. Well, he's right, Molly. I still have a kind of a yen to go back on the stage. You know, I always wanted to do Romeo. Do Juliet a favor, Buster, and lay off. <laughs> You're getting a little broad across the pistol pockets for tights. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that, McGee. I think Mr. Wilcox would be a very handsome Romeo. <laughs> Do you know the part, Mr. Wilcox? Oh, sure. As a matter of fact, I just wrote it out for a little entertainment they're putting on tomorrow night for the Johnson Wax salesman. Uh, here, see? Oh. Look, Junie, any time you write Shakespeare for them guys, the stage is going to be hip-deep in Johnson's Wax. <laughs> Enter Lady Macbeth, lower left, with a roll-top desk. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Oh, but, McGee, this looks awfully good. Read it, Mr. Wilcox. Okay, I'll be Romeo. You read Juliet's part. Oh, my gosh, this is going to set Orson Welles back 20 years. <laughs> you be quiet now, McGee. Go ahead, Mr. Wilcox. Act two, scene two, Capulet's Garden. Enter Romeo. On a high-wheel bicycle. Hush, dearie. Enter Romeo. He jests at scars that never felt a wound. Juliet appears above at window. With shotgun. <laughs> but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Ah, me. She speaks. <laughs> what dost thou, fair Juliet? I dust John living room, my Romeo. <laughs> the Capulet would have a prideful home, so Johnson's wax protects his, his worldly goods. And I, no slave to household task, make light of labor thus so neatly foiled. Ain't this awful, folks? <laughs> ah, sweet Juliet, a goodly spouse you'll make to know that dust and dirt cling not to wax-protected things. That's Capulet. <laughs> would that our love could be as well preserved. It can, my Romeo, and gleam as brightly as a Johnson-polished home. This very balcony from which I speak, its wood is shielded from the elements by wax. It... Where's the rest of this, Romeo? Or Mr. Wilcox? Well, that's all I had time to do. I'm going to finish it this evening. How do you like it? If you're asking me, Waxy, I'll settle for Olsen and Johnson. <laughs> Your Shakespeare's as phony as a six-bit henna rinse. <laughs> I thought it was wonderful, Mr. Wilcox. Have you got to go now? Yeah. Uh, I'll see you later, folks. Whence goest thou, Romeo? Homeo. Oh. <laughs> My goodness, isn't he talented, McGee? I think he has a great flair for the theater. Yeah. If he had any bigger flair, our fire insurance wouldn't be worth a nickel. 
Hey, what time is it? It's almost half past. Oh, my gosh. We got to get going, Molly. Them dry cleaners might be closed up and skipping town by this time. Doggone it, we never will get out of here at this rate. I think there's a power watching over you, dearie, mm-hmm. trying to keep you from making a dunce of yourself. Come in. Oh, good afternoon, Mrs. Carstairs. Do come in. How do you do, my dear? I see you have your coat on. Am I detaining you? We're just going down to the dry cleaners, Carsty. They stole my fountain pen. Oh, now, wait a minute, McGee. That's a serious charge to make, you know. If it was the Wistful Vista dry cleaners, Mr. McGee, I must say I have always found them extremely meticulous. Aha, uh-huh. you hear that, Molly? Even Carsty says they're meticulous. I knew it. I had a feeling Meticulous, the... dearie, meticulous means careful. Huh? Oh, it does? Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you meant, Carsty? Yes, Mr. McGee. Oh. Mr. Carstairs has left jewelry in his pockets many, many times, mm-hmm. and the cleaners have always returned it immediately. <laughs> He's so absent-minded, you know. Is he really, Millicent? Oh, yes, indeed, my dear. Why, just last night, as we were coming home in a taxi cab from a rather gay party, he leaned over to me and said, Remember now, not a word of this to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> What did you say, Karsty? Oh, I said, of course not, dear. But you better get out a block or two from the house. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> oh, it must be a little disturbing to be married to a man like him, Millicent. Oh, he's quite harmless, Mrs. McGee. One can't dislike a beagle merely because he thinks he's a wolf. <laughs> oh, which reminds me, my dear. Will you go to the dog show with me Friday afternoon? Sure she will, Karsty, and so will I. You... Uh, how nice. I just love dog shows, Millicent. Is your dog in the show? Uh, yes, she is, and I hope she goes through with it this year. Why? What happened last year, Karsty? At the last minute, she scratched herself. Oh, Well, <laughs> I do hope you find your pen, Mr. McGee. Good day. And here are the King's Men with onesie twosie. You'd never think arithmetic was something you'd enjoy. But when it's done a certain way, it's fun for every girl and boy. Onesie, twosie, I love doozy, twosie, threesie, you kiss measy, threesie, foursie, kiss some moresie, let's go counting higher. Foursie, fivesie, man alivesie, fivesie, sixie, hug me quicksie, sixie, sevensie, my heart's on a flyer Keep the numbers going Till the song is done Love will keep on growing And we'll have lots of fun Seventy-eightsy, you're my daintsy Eightsy, ninesy, ain't this finesy Ninesy, tensy, start againsy Onesie, twosie, I love yousy Oh, you gotta count Onesie, twosie, cause I'm choosy I'll kiss you Doozy, threesy, it's so easy You kiss me Easy for the eye adores he kiss some more see why don't we count a little
Next block, Oak Street, near 14th. Now, you see those green lamps in the middle of the block there? Yes, what's that? Police station. If these fountain pen thieves don't pony over my gold-pointed fountain pen immediately or sooner, I'm going to swear out a warrant to Hold it, hold it, McGee. Here comes Mr. Wimple. Huh? Who? Oh, oh, hi, Wimp, old man. Hello, folks. (laughs) Out for a little walk, Mr. Wimple? Yes, I'm just seeking inspiration, Mrs. McGee. I find that walking helps me think. Inspiration for what, Wimp? Poetry, Mr. McGee. Oh. I have an order for some greeting cards, and I have to write them tonight. I think I have a good one for Mother's Day. Oh, I'd love to hear it, Mr. Wimple. How does it go? <clears throat> it goes, Mama, dear Mama, this is your day. So drop your work, come out and play. Hear the children sing good wishes. Then go back and do the dishes. <laughs> That's more truth than poetry, Wimple. <laughs> Not that it's much of either one. <laughs> Have you any others, Mr. Wimple? Well, I was working on one for a friend that's sick in the hospital. Sort of a sympathy card. Oh, I bet this one will have them in stitches. <laughs> Read it, Wimp. It goes <clears throat> to a friend who is sick. I'm sorry you are sick, my friend. I'm sorry you are ill. In a place where they wake you up at four to give you a sleeping pill. I hope you have a lovely nurse to help when fever starts to boil you. And if you have, move over, kid, because I'll be right down there to join you. (laughs) Well, I'll see you later, folks. Here's the dry cleaning place, Molly. Now, you let me do the talking. I know better than to try and stop you, dearie. But now be reasonable. What do you mean, be reasonable? With guys that deliberately stole my fountain pen? Come on. Yes, sir? What can I do for you, sir? You picked up a blue serge suit at my house this morning, bud. Yes? And my husband thinks he left his fountain pen in it. I know darn well I left my fountain pen in it. I always have my pen in that blue serge suit. Now, look, Buster, I want that fountain pen back, or by George... Oh, now, just a moment, sir. Give us a chance to investigate. I can tell you immediately if your pen has been found. What was the name, please? Parker. Your address, Mrs. Parker? (laughs) The name is McGee, bud. Oh, well, uh, which of you is making the complaint? Mr. McGee or Mrs. Parker? I, I am Mrs. McGee. The pen's name was Parker. It was a solid, gold-pointed, kind of greenish pen that was given to me by a Fred Nittany from Starved Rock, Illinois. Old partner of mine in vaudeville. Hmm, actors. Do you have an address? 79 Whistle Vista. Oh, yes, I remember. You've been our customers for many years. Of course, that would be, uh, Driver Cryle being Route 3. Oh, Miss Fregelhorn... Yes, Mr. Hoppentrout. Was there a fountain pen in a suit from 79 Wistful Vista, Route 3? No, Mr. Hoppentrout. Two papers and matches, some pool chalk, a nail file, a rabbit's foot, and a ticket stub for the World Series of 1932. <laughs> They're in the mail. Well, thank you, Miss Fregelhorn. No, I'm sorry, Mr. McGee, but... But you ain't half as sorry as you're going to be. Why, George, when a man trusts a business institution like this, to be honest, and then has him walk out with a solid gold-pointed fountain pen that was given to him by Fred Nittany... Now, wait a minute, McGee. I'm sure, Mr. McGee. You're sure? You ain't as sure as I am, Buster. I'll bet you got that whole back room there stacked to the ceiling with stolen fountain pens. (laughs) Deliberately walking into people's homes and taking suits full of fountain pens. That's larceny, bud. And by George... May I ask one question, Mr. McGee? Certainly. Mr. Houghton Trout. And make it snappy, bud. One question. What is it? How would you like a good poke in the nose? Oh. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Not only a burglar, but a tough guy, eh? 
Come out from behind that counter, Buster, and I'll fix you up a knuckle sandwich. Nobody can talk oh, to me no, like no, that. Oh, no, no, no. Stop it, both of you. <laughs> Mr. Houghton-Trout, what is the procedure when somebody thinks you have something and you think you have it? The proper procedure is to make out a claim blank. Well, give us one, please. Certainly. Here you are. I don't want to make out a claim. I want to bust this fresh guy right in the beezer. Fill it out, dearie. <laughs> well, okay. Where's the pencil? Uh, they have to be filled out in ink, Mr. McGee. Here, use my pen. I don't want any favors from you, Cy. I'll use my own pen. Now then. Name and address. Describe the lost article. Approximate value. McGee? Huh? Where'd you get that pen you're using? This pen? Well, this was given to me by Fred Nittany from Star Rock. <laughs> Well, imagine that, writing this code all the time. Go on, apologize to Mr. Houghton-Trout, dearie. Sure. I'm sorry, Houghton-Trout, old man. Quite all right, Mr. McGee. Shall I tear up the claim blank? Oh, no, I might as well finish it out. I'm bound to lose this pen sometime. Now <laughs> <laughs> then, ah, state circumstances, I don't know what the article... Oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> The next time you tune in Fibber, McGee, and Molly, the not-so-merry month of March will be here. How is March around your particular part of the world? Quite probably a little on the wet side. And you know what that means? More mud and dirt tracked into your nice, clean kitchen and hallways. Well, this March, why don't you save yourself a lot of work and worry by using glow coat on your linoleum? No matter how much mud is tracked in, you can have a sparkling, clean floor in a jiffy with Johnson's glow coat. Just wipe up with a damp cloth, and it shines like new again. It's no trouble at all to glow coat linoleum, of course. Just spread it around on the floor and let it dry. Glow coat shines itself, does all the work. In 20 minutes, your floors are wax polished and beautifully shining, never streaked or uneven. You'll be glad to know that the tough film of glow coat protects your linoleum, too, against dirt, wear, and spill things. That means its bright colors and attractive patterns will stay new looking far longer. Why not have your linoleum ready for bad weather by using Johnson's self polishing glow coat? Yep. Just sitting here exercising my rights as an American citizen. With my old mandolin. I'm a one-man music union. Meaning what? I mean, nobody can interfere with my lawful right to peacefully pick it. <laughs> oh, dear. This is Harlow Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax Products for Home and Industry, inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. A little thing whipped up into an entire episode of Fibber McGee and Molly. Our broadcast came from February 26, 1946. You heard a reference in there to the vaudeville beginnings of Fibber, McGee, and Molly. You also heard Fibber mention Orson Welles, and we'll be hearing him next as the Count of Monte Cristo. It's the Mercury Theater, and this is Skywave Audio Theater. With wry eloquence, Orson Welles suggests that an Alexander Dumas plot is enough to provide work for a legion of adapters, given the breakneck pace of 
producing an hour each week of the Mercury Theater, the winnowing of the vast volumes of the Count of Monte Cristo is impressive. On top of that, of course, Orson Welles, ever versatile. He serves as introducer and narrator and the Count of Monte Cristo as a 17-year-old innocent, a suffering prisoner, and a vengeful millionaire. Put all of that together with the production values, and you have got a radio classic. From August 28th, 1938, this is the Mercury Theater with the Count of Monte Cristo. The Mercury Theater on the air. The Columbia Broadcasting System takes pride in bringing you Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in another broadcast of the unique series which signalizes radio's first presentation of a complete theatrical producing company. For these programs, the regular member stations of the Columbia Broadcasting System are joined by the coast-to-coast network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Tonight, the Mercury Theater turns to another of the great narratives and adventure stories of the world of literature. The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. And here again is the director, the star, and producer of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. There is no reasonable explanation of Alexander Dumas. He was a rich man. We note with interest that he went bankrupt in the theater. He was a revolutionary. His grandfather was a marquis. His grandmother was a negress. He was born as Napoleon became emperor. He died in poverty as the Germans marched into France. He wrote The Count of Monte Cristo as a newspaper serial, and shortly after the last installment, a ball and a bullfight were organized for him in Seville, and finally in Algiers, the customs men let his baggage through without examination. Such things don't and can't happen today, but then neither does Alexander Dumas himself, the wildest romance of a man who could and did openly maintain at 70 numerous establishments and a literary factory as well, whose quantitative output is equaled in the arts only by Rubens' studio. There's a good story about what Dumas Père told Dumas Fils. Father, said the inventor of Camille, I have just read your latest book. Have you, my son, said Dumas Père. What's it about? I'm not sure I have. It is no secret and no shame either that the Chateau Monte Cristo was haunted by many ghostwriters, and that its owner signed his name to more books than anyone could ever write. It is not expected of Pharaoh that he build with his own hands his own pyramids, and the mere blueprint of one Dumas plot is an airtight alibi for a whole career. Of all these, out of question, the most gloriously complex, possibly the most impossible, a mathematical miracle, as perfect as watchworks, and as big as Pittsburgh, among hundreds, one Dumas plot persists as the most ingenious tall story ever perpetrated by the mind of man. God's vengeance on radio scriptwriters and your indestructible delight in spite of us. Here, then, is a humble 57 minutes' worth of The Count of Monte Cristo.
the year 1815, I, Edmond Dantes, was first mate of the Pharaoh, bound for Marseille from Smyrna, Trieste, and Naples. The day we left Naples, the captain was attacked by a fever and died within three days. On the 28th day of September, we sighted the coast of France. Some hours later, we rounded the Chateau d'If and entered Marseille Harbor. Monsieur Morel, the owner, came abroad. Good day, Monsieur Morel. Ah, good day, Monsieur Danglars. You've heard of the misfortune that's befallen us, Monsieur Morel? Yes, yes, you mean poor Captain Leclerc. He was a brave and an honest man. And a first-rate seaman, grown old between sky and ocean. Well, a man needs not be old, Danglars, to know his business. Edmund Dantes, your mate there, seems to understand his thoroughly. Hey, let go of the anchor! <laughs> you see, he fancies himself captain already. And so, in fact, he is. Monsieur Morel, at your service. You called me, I think. Yes, Dantes. I'm told you stopped a day and a half at the Isle of Elba. Why? I don't know, sir. You don't know? No, sir. It was to fulfill the last instruction of Captain Leclerc when he was dying. He gave me a packet to be delivered on the island. Ah. You did right, Dentist, to follow Captain Leclerc's instructions. Though, if it were known that you've delivered a packet to the island, it might get you into trouble. How could it get me into trouble, sir, if I don't even know what it was? I was delivering... Beg your pardon, sir. Yeah, the customs officer's coming alongside. Hey there, the other companionway. Well, Monsieur Morel? Yes, Monsieur Danglars? Edmund Dottis gave you satisfactory reasons for his landing at Elba? Oh, yes, quite satisfactory. <laughs> so much the better. Yes, it was Captain Leclerc who gave orders for this delay. Talking of Captain Leclerc, has Dottis given you a letter from him? To me? No, was there one? I believe that besides the packet... Captain Leclerc had confided a letter to his care. Of what packet are you speaking, Dangla? Of that which Dantes left at the Isle of Elba. How do you know he had a packet to leave at the Isle of Elba? I was passing close to the door of the captain's cabin, which was partly open. I saw him give the letter and the packet to Dantes. He didn't speak to me of it, but if there was any letter, he'll give it to me. Dangla, you'll report to the office this afternoon with the bills of lading and the storage plans. Good day. Good day, Monsieur Morel. It's a wonderful thing to be home again after three months at sea. To see the places you've grown up in as a boy and the streets full of people. I found my father in the little dark room where he lived on the fourth floor of a house in the Rue du Noyer. Father! Oh, Edmund. Father. What is it? Are you ill? Father, what's wrong with you? No, no, my boy, my son, no, but I... I didn't expect you in the joy and surprise of seeing you so Father, suddenly. Father, listen to me. I'm to be captain at 20, a captain with 3,000 francs pay and a share in the profits. Isn't that more than I could have hoped for? Yes, yes, dear boy. Much more than we could have expected. <laughs> Snark, young dog, your son, eh, Dantes? In the doorway stood our neighbor, the tailor, Caderousse. Captain, eh? I know someone below the church of San Michel who won't be sorry to hear about this. Eh, Dantes? Mercedes? That's who he means, Father. And now that I know your will, your consent, I'll go to her. Oh, go, dear boy, and heaven bless you in a wife, as it blessed me. In a wife? How fast you go, Father Dantes. 
She isn't his wife yet, as far as I know. She soon will be. Yes, yes, but you were wise to return when you did, my boy. Well, Caterus, what do you mean by that? Oh, I don't mean anything in particular. Mercedes is a very fine girl, and fine girls never lack suitors. There's one in particular, a cousin of hers, I think he is. Fenner Mondego. I've even heard it What's said... What's that? Oh, don't worry, my boy. Now that you're captain, who could refuse Did you? You just say that if I were not a captain... I didn't say that, my boy. I oh. didn't say that. No offense, man. My boy, no offense. I went into the street down past the church of San Michel into the fisherman's quarter. Mercedes! Mercedes! Edmund, you're back. We were in each other's arms. The burning sun of Marseille covered us with a flood of light. At first I saw nothing but her face raised to mine. The shining eyes. The eager lips. Then suddenly in the room behind us I saw the face of a young man. Pale and threatening. And I saw that he had his hand on a knife at his belt. Mercedes, who is this man? Mercedes, I did not expect to meet an enemy here in your house. There is no enemy. This is my cousin. We've been friends since childhood. Fernandez, the man whom after you, Edmond, I love best in the world. Well? Give me your hand, Fernand. Is your name Edmond Dantes? Fernand Mondego came forward. For an instant I saw a look of deadly hatred in his eyes. Then quickly, without giving me his hand... He went past us and out into the street. The Trothel Feast is a gay affair in the South. Monsieur Morel removed every difficulty. The papers were soon drawn up. The arrangements were simple. Mercedes had no fortune. I had none to settle on her, and the wedding was set for two. All our friends were there, and the crew of the Pharaoh and Mercedes people from among the fishermen. Edmund Dantes. What do you want of me? Edmund Dantes, in the name of the law, I arrest you. Arrest me? You'll be duly acquainted with the reason for your arrest at your first examination. Officer. What? Officer, he is... What's that nothing? Do you think He's done nothing Edmund. wrong. He's Surely a good boy. Edmund. Is this possible? In which case, every reparation will be made. Edmund. Meantime, Edmund Dantes, you're under arrest. Why? Follow me. Prisoner. Bring him in. Wait outside. Yes, sir. What is your name? Are you the king's prosecutor, sir? Yes. Your name? My name is Edmond Dantes. Give all the information in your power. 
Have you served under the usurper, Napoleon? No, sir. It is reported that your political opinions are extreme. My political opinions? Alas, I never had any opinions. I'm hardly 19, sir. What do you make of this, then? It is a letter, Monsieur Dantes. Well, read it. Monsieur, the king's prosecutor is hereby informed by a friend of the throne and religion that one Edmond Dantes, mate of the ship Pharaoh, arrived this morning from Smyrna after having touched at Naples and the island of Elba. He's been entrusted by the usurper with a letter for the Bonapartist committee in Paris. Proof of this crime will be found on arresting him for the letter will be found on his person or at his father's or in his cabin on board the Pharaoh. I'm sorry, sir. I don't understand it. Do you know the writing? No, sir. Whoever did it writes well. Now, have you any enemies? Not that I know of, sir. Now answer me frankly. Not as a prisoner to a judge, but as one man to another. Is there any truth in this accusation? Not at all, sir. I swear by my honor as a sailor. Then I told him my story. I told him how Captain Leclerc on his deathbed had entrusted a packet to me and told me with his dying breath to deliver it to the island of Elba. What did you do then? What should I have done, monsieur? What every man would have done in my place. I sailed for the island of Elba. I delivered the packet and was given in return a letter to be delivered to a man here in Marseille. I did it because it was what my captain had told me to do. I landed here yesterday. That is all, sir. I see. Well, that sounds like the truth. Now, give up this letter you have brought from Elba. Give us your word that you will appear if you're called and go back to your friends. I'm free then, sir? Yes. But first, give me this letter. Well, here you are, sir. Very well. By the way, to whom were you to deliver this letter? To Francois Noirtier of this city. Francois Noirtier? Yes, sir. Why, do you know this man? A faithful servant of the king does not know conspirators. Have you shown this letter to anyone? To no one, sir, on my honor. Nobody knows that you are the bearer of a letter from the Isle of Elba... Addressed to Francois Noirtier? Nobody, sir, except the person who gave it to me. Why, sir? What's the matter? What's the matter, sir? You give me your word of honor that you are ignorant of the contents of this letter. My word of honor, sir, but what's the matter? You're ill, sir. Shall I call for help? No, stay where you are. It is for me to give orders here, not you. I'm sorry. I am no longer able, as I had hoped, to restore you to liberty... Before doing so, there are formalities to be gone through. I'll try to make them as short as possible. The principal charge against you, as you know, is this letter. And you see what I do with it. You see? I destroy it. Oh, Monsieur de Villefort. Your goodness itself. Now then. Do you trust me? Order me, sir. I'll obey. Listen, this is not an order, but advice that I give you. Yes, Monsieur. I shall keep you until this evening here in the Palais de Justice. Yes, sir. Should anyone else question you, don't breathe a word of this letter. I promise. You see, the letter is destroyed. You and I alone know of its existence. So if they question you about it, deny all knowledge of it. I will, sir. It was the only letter you had. It was. Swear it. I swear. Did you ring, monsieur? A guard entered. Villefort whispered something in his ear to which he replied by a motion of his head. Follow this man, Monsieur Dantes. He has his orders. Monsieur Dantes, 
hotel. Presently it grew dark. Hours later I heard steps coming along the corridor. By the torches they carried I saw the glittering sabers and carbines of four gendarmes. Edmund Dantes. Have you come to fetch me? Yes. By the orders of the king's prosecutor? I believe so. Come with us. Is this carriage for me? It is for you. Get in. On board. Heave up there! I sat in the stern sheets with a guard on each side of me in the little boat. the harbor, my first feeling was one of joy at breathing the fine sea air again, then of sadness as I saw the lights of La Reserve away to the left of me and heard the sound of voices and music coming through the open windows. Now we had passed the Tete de Mor. We were in front of the lighthouse. We were about to double the battery. Where are you taking me? You'll soon know. But I want to know... We are forbidden to give you any information. Now we had left the Iroh to know where the lighthouses stood and we were going past the fishermen's quarter. A few lights were visible from the water. If I cried out, perhaps Mercedes might hear me. I remained silent, my eyes fixed on the lights. The boat went on, and presently a rising ground hid the lights. Then I saw that we were out to sea. Comrades! For the love of God, tell me where we're going. You're a native of Marseille and a sailor, and yet you don't know where you're going. I have no idea. Well, unless you're blind or have never been outside the harbor, you must know. No! Look around you. Then suddenly, within a hundred yards of me in the night... I saw a dark, frowning rock with a tower on it, like a great black scaffold. The Chateau d'If. Quite right, my friend. The Chateau d'If. Help! Help! Let me go! Help! 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 I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm Dantes, haven't you slept? I don't know. Are you hungry? I don't know. Do you want anything? I want to see the governor. The governor. I want to see the... I'm innocent. I'm innocent. 
I threw out my food onto the floor. I walked round and round the narrow cell like a wild beast in its cage. I tore up the straw of my mattress. Dantes! Well, are you reasonable today? I want to see the governor. I've told you that's impossible. Why is it impossible? It's not allowed. I want to see the governor. Take my advice, my friend. Don't brood over what's impossible. You'll go out of your head. You think so? We had an instance of it here in this cell. The priest who was here before you... He kept offering the governor a million francs for his freedom. In the end, he went out of his head. When was he in this cell? Two years ago. Was he set free? No. He was put in a dungeon. Listen to me. I want to see the governor. If you don't let me see the governor someday, I'll hide behind the door. And when you come in, I'll dash your brains out with a stool. That's eh? Hey. Put that stool down. Are you going to let me see the governor? Put it down. Put that stool down. Put it down. Well, do I see the governor? Yes, yes, yes. You shall see the governor at once. That's better. It's better. Hurry. Hurry. Presently, the jailer returned with four soldiers. By the governor's orders, take the prisoner to the floor below. To the dungeon, then? That's right. We put madmen... With madness. You don't understand it. I tell you, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Months went by underground, foul, humid, and dark. Every day. Twice a day, morning and evening, the jailer came to my cell and put down the vile food and went away without speaking to me. My hair and nails had grown long, and my skin was white as a leper's. I'd been proud the first months. Now I began to beg. I begged to be moved from this dungeon to another. I begged to be allowed to walk about. I begged for books. Nothing was granted. I spoke to the jailer when he brought me my food. He rarely answered me. But to speak to a man, even though mute, was something. I tried to speak when alone, but the sound of my own voice terrified me. After what must have been three or four years, the governor of the Chateau d'If was transferred. The new man never troubled to learn my name. I was no longer Edmond Dantes. It's number 34. I took to praying, but not as men pray in prosperity. In my prayers, I laid out every action of my life before the Almighty. Still, I remained a prisoner. Then a deep gloom took possession of me, and then furious rage and savage thoughts of revenge, and wildly I dashed myself against the walls of my prison. I tore at my own flesh with my nails, and then in the end... In the end, I began to think of dying. I swore that I would starve myself to death. So every morning and every evening, I threw out through the small grated window all the food the jailer brought me, every bit of it, at first gaily and then thoughtfully, and then with regret. I held the plate in my hand for an hour at a time, gazing at the morsel of bad meat, of tainted fish, of black and moldy bread. Then I remembered my oath and threw the dish away. One day, I found I had not sufficient force to throw my supper out of the window. The next morning, 
I could hardly see or hear. I knew I was dying. The day went by. I felt a sort of stupor creeping over me. The gnawing pain at my stomach had ceased. My thirst had abated. When I closed my eyes, I saw myriads of lights dancing before them. I was on the edge of that mysterious country called death. Suddenly, a little after dark, I heard a hollow sound in the wall against which I was lying. I sat up and listened. It was a continual scratching, as if made by a huge claw, some iron instrument scraping against the stones. Then all was silent. Soon afterwards it began again. Nearer. And more distinct. Perhaps it was only a workman repairing a neighboring dungeon. I would soon find out. The sound continued. With my earthenware jug, I knocked against the wall with a sound came. on the fourth evening. Whoever it was was quite close to me now. I wanted desperately to help him. But I had nothing, no knife or sharp instrument. I smashed my earthenware jug. That night I moved my bed out from the wall and started to scrape the plaster with a piece from my broken jug. Soon the fragments of plaster began to fall away. In three days, I uncovered a large stone. The next day, about noon, the stone began to move. Oh, my God, my God, don't fail me now. My God. Who talks of God in this place? Speak again. In the name of heaven. Speak. Who are you? A prisoner. Of what country? A Frenchman. Your name? Edmond Dantes. How long have you been here? Since the 28th day of February, 1815. Your crime? I'm innocent. And you? Who are you? I am number 27. How long have you been here? Since 1804. 20 years. All that night we worked. Then, 
Just before dawn, a portion of the floor in my cell gave away. And from the bottom of this passage, the depth of which it was impossible to measure, appeared the head, then the shoulders, and lastly the body of a man. To this man, I owe all that I possess, all that I know, all that I have become. In the prison, he was known as the Mad Priest. I never learned his name. For eight years, we saw each other every day, using the tunnel he had dug through the solid rock, concealing the mouth of the passage with stones carefully fitted in place. By the sundial he had traced on the wall of his cell, we knew the hours of the guard's visit. The rest of the day we were together. He had been a great scholar in his day. And all that he knew, he taught me with infinite loving patience. Day after day, year after year. Then, one morning when I went down, I found him standing in the middle of his cell. Pale as death. Quick, Dante's quick. Listen to what I have to say. What is it, Father? Tell me. I beseech you. What's the matter? I am dying. Help me to my bed. See? Half my body is paralyzed already. Here, Father. Ah, thank you, my son. Now listen to me. All is over with me. This night or tomorrow, I shall be dead. But, Father... I know the illness. There is no hope. And I shall never leave this place now. Before I die, there's something I want to give you. In his hand, he held a morsel of paper tightly rolled together. A half-burned paper on which were some lines of Gothic character, traced with a peculiar kind of ink. This paper, my child, is my treasure. From this day forth, it belongs to you. Your... your treasure? Oh, yes. I know what's passing through your mind at this moment. Even now, you, like all the others. But be assured, my child, I am not mad. This treasure exists. Read what it says. This treasure, which may amount to declare April 14th. You see, you see? I see nothing but broken lines and unconnected words. Yes. To you who read them for the first time. But to me, who have grown pale over them by many nights' study, who have reconstructed every phrase, completed every thought. Have you ever heard of the great Spada treasure? I've heard sailors talk of it, yes. For ten years, I worked for the house of Spada. That paper you have as is what is left of the will of Cardinal Spada, murdered by Roderick Borgia. Now, take this and put the two pieces together and read. The 25th day of April, 1498, being invited to dine by His Holiness Alexander VI, and fearing for my life, I declare to my nephew Guido Spada, my sole heir, that I have buried in a place he knows... In the caves of the island of Monte Cristo, all I possessed of ingots, gold, money, jewels, and diamonds, 
which treasure may amount to nearly two million of Roman crowns, which you will find in the farthest angle of the island cave. And this treasure I bequeath and leave entire to him as my sole heir, Rodrigo Sparta. Ten million crowns? Yes. A hundred million francs of our money. Think of the good a man could do in the world with a hundred million francs. Yes. Now, I am dying. With my dying breath, I leave this treasure to you. Pray God you'd be more fortunate than I. But I have no right to it, sir. You are my son, Dante's. You are the child that God sent to console me in my captivity. Two days later, in fearful agony, he died. I closed his eyes and laid him out to rest as well as I could. That night, the governor of the prison came down to look at the body. Well, the madman's gone to look after his treasure. With all his millions, he hasn't enough to pay for a shroud, eh? Is the iron heated? Yes, sir. Apply it to the soles of his feet. From where I stood in the secret passage, I could smell the sickening odor of burnt flesh. He's dead, all right. Poor devil. He was a priest. Get him the newest sack you can... What time shall we bury him, sir? The usual. When the cell was empty again, I went in. On the bed at full length. And faintly lighted by the light of a single candle was visible a sack of coarse cloth. In it was stretched a long and stiffened form. I unlaced the sack drew the corpse out and carried it through the tunnel to my cell. I laid it on my bed, turned the head to the wall, and covered it with a sheet. For the last time, I kissed the ice-cold brow. Then I went back to the dead man's cell. There's a job I can do now. Right, you are. Cold as the devil up there, I could hear steps in the passage as the guards came down with a stretcher. Quickly, I laced up the sack around my body. I lay stiff, hoping they would not hear the beating of my heart. Here we go. You take the head, and I'll take the feet. Yeah. It's heavy enough for an old man. They say every year adds half a pound to the bones. Yeah. Forward, much. Careful, man. Steady, while I open this door. Lord, it's cold up here. Yeah, pleasant morning for a dip in the ocean. A bit chilly, I'd say. Have you got the weight? Here it is. Tie it on, round his feet. That's right. Tight. See if you can do it any tighter. Yeah, that's all right. That'll sink him. All right, now. Are you ready? One. Hey, wait a minute. Get nearer to the edge. The last one was mashed on a rock. We got the blame for it. All right, then. Come on, I'm freezing at that. Ready? Let's go. 
One. Two. Three. listening to the CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in Alexander Dumas' Count of Monte Cristo. The performance will continue in just a moment. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. We continue now with the Count of Monte Cristo, starring Orson Welles with the Mercury Theatre on the Air. In September 1834, there arrived in Marseille a man of about 38 or 40, of a pallor that was almost livid. He gave the impression of a man who had been enclosed for a long time in a tomb. Soon after landing, he inquired for a man by the name of Dantes. And hearing that he'd been dead for the past 14 years, he asked for a tailor called Caderousse. Are you Gaspard Caderousse? I am. Let's go inside, my friend. I have to talk to you. Well, what is it? Monsieur Caderousse, in the year 1814 or 15, did you know a young sailor by the name of Dantes? Dantes? Yes. Why do you ask? Is he alive? No, he died in prison. Died, eh? What did he die of? What do young, strong men usually die of in prison? He died of sorrow and a broken heart. And before he died, he begged me to clear his name. He gave me the names of the people here in Marseille who had been his friends. There are three, he said, besides my father and the girl I was betrothed to. One of them is Caderousse. He said that? The second is Dangla. Dangla? The third is Fernand Mondego. Mondego? You know these men? Know them? <laughs> Where in heaven's name have you been, my friend? There isn't a man in France who doesn't know them. Dangla is a millionaire. Has a banking house of his own. Baron Danga, he calls himself now. And Mondego's a count and a cabinet minister and an officer of the Legion of Honor with a house in Paris a block wide. <laughs> I could tell you something about these two. Not that it'll do much good now that he's dead. Who? That young fellow you were talking about, Dante's. I have a good mind to tell you anyway. Do you know who sent Edmund Dantes to prison? Well, I do. It was two men who were jealous of him. One for love and one for ambition. And do you know who they were? I'll tell you. Mondego and Dangla. I thought they were his friends. That's what he thought. What did they do? They denounced him to the police as a traitor. And was he a traitor? No more than you or I. Which of the two denounced him? Both, monsieur. Hmm. It was Danglars who wrote the letter, and Mondego who put it in the post. When was this letter written? The Carvazeth, the night before the wedding. How do you know? Were you there? I was at the next table. They thought I was too drunk to hear. I see. How about this girl Dantes was betrothed to? Mercedes? Yes. Yes, that's her name. What happened to her? Well, sir, that's a sad story. 
When Dantes was arrested, she was nearly mad with grief. Pitiful it was. Six months went by and there was no news of him. And every day there was her mother telling her he was dead and telling her to marry Mondego. She came to see old Dantes. Edmund is dead, he said to her. If he weren't, he would have returned to us. Then the old man died, and that left her quite alone. Still she waited, and still no word from him. Then in the end, after a year, she married Mondego. And now she's one of the greatest ladies in Paris. A year. She waited a year. What did you say? Nothing. Nothing. You say Edmund Dante's father died. Yes. Soon after his son disappeared. What did he die of? If you ask me, he died of starvation. Starvation? The doctor had another name for it. But I know better. He locked himself up in his room and died of starvation. <laughs> day the stranger appeared at the Palais de Justice and asked to see the prison records for the year 1815. He obtained permission to go through the case of a certain Edmund Dantes, imprisoned that year and subsequently reported as dead. He found everything arranged in due order, the denunciation, examination and the magistrate's marginal notes. He read the examination and noted with surprise that the name of Francois Noitier, to whom the fatal letter had been addressed, never once appeared in it. There was a notation in the margin which read as follows. Edmond Dantes, an inveterate criminal to be kept in complete solitary confinement and to be strictly watched and guarded. It was signed de Villefort. Below, in another hand, was written, Prisoner killed while attempting to escape. That night, the stranger left Marseille, going north. Mondego. Dangla. Villefort, Mondego, Dangla. Find out everything there is to know about them. Every move they've made. Every word they've said. Every line they've written. Yes, sir. Find out about their homes. Their wives, their children, their friends. Yes, sir. Find out where they got their power. How they made their money, whom they robbed, whom they cheated, whom they murdered.
one day in November, Baron Dongler, head of the banking house of that name, received a visit from a new client. Monsieur le Baron Dongler. I have the honor of addressing the Count of Monte Cristo. You have, sir. Have you been in Paris long, sir? Since this morning. I have a letter here, sir, from the firm of Thompson and French in Rome. A letter of credit in your name. Good. And I take it that beginning today my checks will be duly honored by your house. In this letter, sir, there is one thing not quite clear. Indeed. According to this letter, the Count of Monte Cristo is to have unlimited credit on our house. And what is there in that simple fact that requires explanation? Uh, merely the term unlimited. Are you suggesting that Thompson and French are not looked upon as solvent bankers? No, no, no. It was not their solvency that I spoke of. I see. But the word unlimited in financial affairs is so extremely vague a term. To me, Baron, the word means exactly what it says. It means without limitation. I assure you, sir, that up to the amount of a million... I beg your pardon. I said that should you be hard-pressed, were you even to require a million... A million? Price? My dear sir, for a trifle like that, I assure you, I should never have trouble to open an account. One million francs. Excuse my smiling when you speak of a sum that I'm in the habit of carrying... In my pocketbook. I admit I am hardly... If you would prefer not to handle this account, Baron Dongler, I have letters similar to yours addressed to Baring of London and Rothschild of the city. You need have no scruples in declining. I assure you I never... No, no, no. No, you merely wish to be convinced that your stockholders ran no risk, nothing more. Very sound, Baron Dongler. I understand they include some of the... Greatest names in France. Am I right? The Duke de Mondego? The Baron de Villefort? It is not generally known that these oh, gentlemen... Of course, of course. Of course. Now we understand one another. I should like to draw tomorrow the sum of, shall we say, six million francs, half gold, half notes. Six million francs? Uh... As you say, sir. If I should require more, I shall let you know. Oh, by the way, Baron Dongler, buy for me tomorrow 10,000 shares of Austrian Commonwealth. You have some information, sir, about this stock? You will find, sir, that I never gamble, except in certainties. Paris been more intrigued than it was that winter by the mysterious Count de Monte Cristo. Of his title, nothing was known save that he derived it from a small, uninhabited island off the coast of Corsica. The source of his fortune was equally obscure, yet his wealth seemed inexhaustible. The paintings in his house in the Champs-Élysées were valued at three million francs, and it was known that for his carriage wheels alone he had paid one million francs, yet far from diminishing... By the middle of December, successful speculation had increased his deposit at Dongler's bank from four to nearly six million francs. At the end of December, a ball was given by the Count and Countess de Mondego. Monsieur, Madame de Noville. 
Mercedes, may I present the most talked of man in Paris, the Count of Monte Cristo, Countess de Montego. I am deeply honored. What is it, Mercedes? What is it? Are you ill? It's nothing, Fernand. Perhaps the heat of this room. It was kind of you to come, sir. Will you give me your arm, Count de Monte Cristo? I am honored, madame. Is it true, Count, what everyone is saying about you in Paris? That you've seen so much, traveled so far, and suffered so deeply? I have suffered deeply, madame. But now you are happy? No doubt, since no one hears me complain. And your present happiness, has it softened your heart? My present happiness does not equal my past misery. Are you not married? I married. <laughs> no, madame. You are alone, then? I am alone. You have no sister, no father? I have none. How can you exist thus without anyone to hold you to life? Madame, long ago, I loved a girl. I was on the point of marrying her, madame, when we were separated. I thought she loved me well enough to wait for me and even to remain faithful to my grave. When I returned, she was married. Perhaps my heart was weaker than that of most and I suffered more than they would have in my place. It's all, madame. And you are still, you still preserve this love in your heart. It is true, one can love only once. Did you ever see her again? Never. And you have forgiven her for all she has made you suffer? Yes, I have forgiven her. But only her? Do you still hate those who separated you? Do you still want to punish them? They will be punished, madame. But it is not I who will punish them. It is their own past. What have you found out about these men? Dangla. Dangla, native of Marseille. Banker, three times bankrupt. Convicted of using charity funds. Yes. Recently suspected of plunging heavily with borrowed funds. Villefort. Villefort, native of Marseille. Formerly King's agent in that city, where he acted as Bonaparte's spy under the name of Francois Noitier. Noitier. Known to accept bribes. At present, prosecutor general at King's Court, said to speculate heavily with Danglars' bank. Mondego. Mondego, native of Marseille. Dismissed from naval service for theft. Tried for murder, 1816. Deserted French army, 1824. 1828, betrayed Ali Pasha to Turks for two million piastres. Believed involved heavy losses, Danglars' bank. Dangla. He's in the private office, Baron de Villefort. Good 
morning, Villefort. Hello, Mondego. You're late, Villefort. What is it, Danglars? You sent for me in court. I hope it's something good this time. We need it. Just arrived. A private message to the Count of Monte Cristo from Thompson and French, Rome. They've never been wrong yet. Does he know you intercept his messages, Danglars? Who cares? What does it say? Read it. Secret treaty signed tonight. Anglo-Italian due sharp rise. Buy all available shares, Thompson and French. Well? We are going to buy. Danglars, I'm worried. Everything you've touched has gone wrong lately. Those Belgian bonds, we lost half a million on them. Whose fault was that? On whose information? Can I have a Dangler if the government changes its mind? Gentlemen, gentlemen. gentlemen. Our situation is desperate. We've got to plunge. Things have been going badly lately. We have no choice. If it weren't for Monte Cristo's deposits, we'd have been bankrupt three weeks ago. If that money should be called today or tomorrow or the next day, this bank is ruined. Dangla, I don't see what that has to do with us. Oh, you don't, don't you? If I go, you go. Make no mistake about that. Gentlemen. What do you propose to do about it, Dangla? It's our only chance to get out. I propose to buy every share of Anglo-Italian that comes into this market. With what? You forget, gentlemen. The Count of Monte Cristo has six million francs deposited in this bank. And what about this message? Does Monte Cristo get to see it? This message, gentlemen, was lost in transmission. Three hundred shares of Anglo Italian. One hundred and two. One hundred and four. Sold. Two hundred Anglo Italian. One hundred and five. One hundred and ten. Sold. Five hundred Anglo Italian. One hundred and ten. One hundred and fifteen. Three hundred shares of Anglo Italian. One hundred and thirty. One hundred and thirty-five. Three hundred shares at one hundred and fifty. One hundred shares of Anglo Italian. One hundred and sixty. One hundred seventy-five. Well, sixty-two thousand shares. How much profit does that show? So far, three quarters of a million, and it's only a beginning. Who was selling? I don't know. I couldn't find out. Come in. Well, well, what is it? The Count of Monte Cristo to see you, sir. Tell him I'm not. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I hope I don't intrude. Danglars? De Villefort? Mondego? How fortunate. Gentlemen, I'm here to say goodbye. Goodbye? I have decided to leave Paris for a while. Perhaps forever. Before I go, there are certain things I have left to do. Monsieur Danglars? I am in need of money for my journey. My credit on your books as of tonight is six million francs. Less about a million to cover certain stocks I sold short today. Here is a check for five million francs made out to cash. My carriage is outside. I will take half in notes. Half in gold. But surely... I beg your pardon. Surely, sir, such a very large sum... If you could conveniently wait for this money for 24 or for the most... I told you. Baron Dangra. I'm leaving Paris tonight. Oh, by the way, Baron, you may be interested to learn. Less than an hour ago, Anglo-Italian went into liquidation. At this moment, that stock is worth less than the paper on which it's printed. But the message from Thompson and French... That message was sent on my instructions three days ago. You see, gentlemen, I own Thompson and French. That is not true that the treaty... As far as I know, Mondego, there never was any question of a treaty. But it means... It means that you three gentlemen are ruined. 
It means that you, Dangler, have robbed the poor and the helpless for the last time. Uh, I'll prosecute you for this. I'll issue a warrant for your arrest. I don't think you will, Baron de Villefort. In the first place, that message was addressed to me. In the second place, since noon today, there has been in the hands of the Minister of Justice a complete record of the career of Francois Noirtier, Baron de Villefort, spy, thief, forger, informer, perjurer. Who am I? Still, you do not know? I know you very well, Fernand Mondego. And tomorrow all Paris will know you for what you are. Deserter. Traitor. Murderer. Who are you? What have we done to you? You condemned me to a slow, horrible death. You killed my father. You deprived me of love, of freedom, of happiness. Stop. In God's name, who are you? I am the specter of a wretch you buried in the dungeons of the Chateau d'If. You guess it now, do you not? Or rather, you remember it. For notwithstanding all my sorrows... And my tortures. I show you now a face which has the happiness of revenge and which is young again. A face you must often have seen in your dreams since your marriage, Mondego, with Mercedes, my betrothed. Yes, Mondego. I am Edmond Dantes. Tonight, the Columbia Broadcasting System, through its affiliated stations Coast to Coast and the network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, has brought you a performance of Alexander Dumas' great adventure story, The Count of Monte Cristo, as dramatized in the first-person singular by Orson Welles and played by the Mercury Theatre on the air. In the cast this evening, Ray Collins as the Abbe Faria, George Coloris as Monsieur Morel, Edgar Barrier as de Villefort, Eustace Wyatt as Caderousse, Paul Stewart as Old Dantes, Sidney Smith as Fernand Mondego, Richard Wilson as the officer, William Allen as a merchant, Anna Stafford as Mercedes, and Orson Welles as Edmund Dantes, the Count of Monte Cristo. The orchestra was directed by Alexander Semler, and Davidson Taylor supervised the production for CBS. Dan Seymour speaking. <laughs> Next week at this same time, another great narrative brought to life by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. A sprawling classic, The Count of Monte Cristo, distilled into an hour of the Mercury Theater from August 29, 1938. Orson Welles in the title role, 
and also the narrator and the producer, and uh, likely with a hand in the adaptation, too, very likely. The force behind several series in the late 40s and early 50s was Jack Webb. And he's next with Patton Novak for Hire on Skywave Audio Theater. Before there was Dragnet, uh, there was Pat Novak for Hire. Jack Webb as Novak sounds a lot like Joe Friday, but with those wild metaphors that made the show a thing unto itself. And this week, Novak emerges from the San Francisco fog long enough to bump into a lady with an issue. More than one issue, I think, before all is said and done. Mix in Jocko Madigan, who uses a mason jar for a jigger, we are told, and the predatory Hellman, a.k.a. Raymond Burr, and you have some marbles that need to be sorted out. This is Pat Novak for Hire from February 27, 1949. Ladies and gentlemen, the American Broadcasting Company brings to its entire network one of radio's most unusual programs. Pat Novak for Hire. reads that way. Pat Novak for hire. Oh, there's no way to dress it up. If you're in business down on the San Francisco waterfront, everything but murder is a parlor trick. If you rob a few graves, you can pay the rent. Nobody cares if you got sore eyelids. You get that way from winking at too many things. Oh, it's a good living if you don't run short of bail bonds and benzedrine. I discovered that Friday night... After the fight broadcast, I wound up in a little whiskey barrel on Powell Street. I had a Glasgow farmer out of the red when they closed the bar, and I drifted across the street for a cup of coffee. When I came out, it was raining, and the street was deserted. I stood in the doorway and watched the dull neons through the rain. They looked splotched and dim, like watercolors rubbed with a damp rag. It was beginning to rain harder, and... I started out of the doorway when she ducked in and bumped up against me. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, just wait for your blockers on the next one. Huh? I guess I bumped into you. Don't go out on a limb. Oh, I'm very sorry. I, I guess I didn't know where I was going. You seemed to be headed in the right direction. How do you mean? Forget I noticed. It's raining awfully hard. Hmm. I wonder if you ever noticed how... When it rains, you feel lonely and lost? Yes. Yes, that's it. How when it rains, you feel lonely and lost. Yeah, well, we're both great readers, so if you'll let me get by, I want to get a cab. Yes, I... I wonder if I could ask you something funny. The bars are closed. No, I... I meant coffee. I'll pay for it. All right. In here? Sure. Come on. The counter will do. All right. What's it gonna be? Hey, you back again? Yeah, two coffees. How come? I'm nervous. Two coffees. You like a bear claw, maybe? You know what we want? Two coffees? Yeah. 
She's right with you. Thank you. I know it's funny asking you in here, but I have to talk to someone. I don't know what I'm doing. I won't argue. I've been away a long time. I guess a long time. Yeah, the kids will be glad to see you back. Huh? Stop it, will you, sis? Get to the point. Put the show on the road. Yes. I think I've lost my memory. At least it seems that way at first. Who are you? I don't know. I suppose you don't believe it. No, but I convince hard. Here you are. Two coffees. Everything all right? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. I'll be down here if you need anything else. You thought up a name yet, Buster? You'd be crazy to believe me. Guess you'd be crazy, but... I can't remember anything. Now, look, lady, if you got amnesia, see the police. But you don't believe me. I don't know. Maybe you are leveling. But if you're off your rocker, go to the police. But suppose... Suppose there's something that happened before and the police would be looking for me. Please, would you try to help me? How bad are you? Do you know what town you're in? Yes. Have you been here before? Do you live here? I think maybe. Seems like a place I've been. All right, I'll put you in a cab. You go see the police. No. I feel funny. I... I think I'll go outside for a minute. I don't want Hilda to know. Please, I'm... I'm going to... Oh, please. Help me. Mister, your girlfriend's on the floor. Yeah, any suggestions? No, she's your date. All right, here, give me a hand, will you? Well, where are you going to take her? The hospital. She's an amnesia case. I hope your memory's good. Huh? You'll need it for answers. Your girlfriend's passed out for good. Don't tell me. I feel a pulse, mister. You're gonna have to start over. Because she's all used up. That's good. You got a wailing wall? Sure. Use the counter. While I call homicide. didn't take 20-20 vision to see I was in trouble. Maybe it was an accident, maybe it wasn't. I didn't have any idea why she keeled over there, but with a figure like hers, I knew it wasn't old age. That call to homicide meant Hellman was going to be in the picture soon, and then I'd stand about as much chance as a cornfield in a stone quarry. Well, I went through the girl's stuff. She had no identification. There were a couple of snapshots of her, but no name. I told the waiter my name and where Hellman could find me. Then I got out of there. I looked up Jocko Madigan, an ex-doctor who liked his booze pretty well. Smart guy, but he used a mason jar for a jigger. I finally found him holed up in some after-hours joint on Geary Street. He was talkative. Hello, Patsy. A small jug for Mr. Novak, waiter. I want to talk to you, Jocko. Patsy, you shouldn't be here. It's after-hours. Yeah, look, Jocko, I need some help. What do you know about amnesia? Oh, a temporary blessing. I thought I had it myself once. Oh, stop it, will you? But it just turned out to be a case of bad bourbon, a peasant's drink, I've decided. Get up the street level long enough for me to talk. I'm in trouble. Yes? I met some blister tonight who took a dive after one cup of coffee. Oh, I see. She had amnesia, or she thinks she did. Oh, well, if she's dead, why worry about amnesia? <laughs> it's a minor ailment. Because Hellman's going to think I had something to do with it. She picked out my lap. Don't you see how it's going to add up? I have high hopes. 
I got to do something in a hurry. Uh, was she a nice girl? Yes, I guess so. How come you met her? Oh, what difference does it make? Tell me about amnesia. Could she phony it? Maybe. Not for long. What makes you think she did? I don't know. She acted like a butterfly with a jag on, and she headed straight for me. It just doesn't add. No. What cell block can I find you in? You can get off your spine and go to work for me. You know the hospital circuit. Hit them all and find out everything you can about recent amnesia cases. Well, how far back do I go? Until you find one that jibes with this girl. It's impossible. Where do I start? I feel like Noah when they told him to beat the flood. She's blonde, blue eyes, expensive clothes. How big? Just the right size for a good dream. Start checking now and give me a ring at my place. No identification? Uh, None. She only said one thing when she fell. Oh, something crude? No, she mentioned a gal by the name of Hilda. That should be easy to trace. Sure. Just look it up in the phone book. You will find it uh, somewhere between Hellman and Homicide. Right, lover? Well, there wasn't anything I could do for the next few hours except sublet from an ostrich. I had to keep undercover because all I had to work on was a couple of snapshots and a girl named Hilda. Neither figured to get me out of this mess. Hellman was bound to ask a lot of questions because I had as much business being with a dead girl as Lucky Luciano in a finishing school. After I left Jocko, I took a sea car downtown and I went home to grab some sleep. When I walked in the apartment, the lights were out, but that didn't make any difference. Hellman's badge was shining like a lake in Ireland. He was making himself at home with my ice cubes. Hello, Novak. Put the light on so I can watch you turn pale. All right, Hellman, get to the point. Sure. Who was your girlfriend? I don't know. She was the coy type. So are you, Novak. You're going to look good sucking your thumb in the gas chamber. I suppose your coroner is full of good news. She died of an overdose of sleeping pills. The coroner's report is murder. How about the space mark suicide? No dice. You don't take sleeping pills, then tour the town for a spot to take a nap. So she died in a coffee joint. What am I supposed to do, carry a stomach pump? You're supposed to tell me who she is. We'll go from there. I don't know. Neither did she. I've got that down as a lie. You file it any way you want, Hellman. She was amnesia. So are you, Novak. All right, hire a medium then. I told you. She came into the restaurant a total stranger. We got social, but she died a total stranger. How are you going to prove it? I don't know. If I know who she was, I wouldn't play footsie with you. Do I have to draw a map? She came in trying to sort out her marbles and never got there. I see. What did you find out? How about clothes markings? That's your department. How about laundry marks? I don't know. I guess she washed her own. Look, Novak, you're a big boy now. You're in a spot. If you want to help, now's the time to do it. You got everything I know. From here on, you work the ball downfield. All right. You just answer the doorbell from time to time. When you see a guy grinning out there, that'll be me coming to pinch you for murder. Well, that'll take lots of doing, mister, and lots of proof. You remember that. I'll try, Novak. But I may get amnesia. Good night, big shot. When Hellman left, I backed into my headache and went to bed. Oh, sure, I was in a spot now. The scorecard said murder, and I was the medalist on the first round. If the police didn't know who she was, that meant she had no record we could work on. I still had the funny hunch about that gal pulling a phony. But if it was phony, I was worse off. I had all the best arrows in town pointing to me, and once Hellman began to build a case, I could throw away those vacation folders. I slept until about nine. The phone began to ring, and I rolled over, expecting to hear Gabriel on the other end of the line. It was just Jocko. Hello, Novak talking. This is Jocko. I've been working all night. 
We'll build a monument later. What'd you find out? The morning paper says the girl was murdered. Yeah, Hellman gave me a preview. What'd you find out at the hospitals? I've got a complete list of amnesia victims. I know more lost souls than a Hong Kong bartender. Yeah. Most of them are men uh, trying to get away from the little woman. Well, you're a big help, Jocko. Don't hang up till you hear about the girl. Go ahead. Nothing on file for the last eight years. In 1941, a 17-year-old girl walked out of California General Hospital. She hasn't been heard of since. How's the description? Oh, it fits like last year's bathing suit. She was Marcia Halpern, the daughter of Emery Halpern. Yeah? Who's he? A pocket-heavy guy down on Montgomery Street. I'll get right down there. Thanks, Jocko. You saved my life. Well, I hadn't intended to go that far. See you later. Well, it was my one chance, even if the odds looked bad. I called up Halpern's office. They said he wasn't in to try him at home. He was listed for a place up on Pacific Heights, so I took a cab over there. When I walked in the lobby, I could tell old man Halpern was making as much money as you can without your own printing press. The apartment made Buckingham Palace look like something George had picked up at a fire sale. The doorman was a sober-looking specimen, the kind of guy that breathes every other Tuesday. He gave me the fisheye as I went up the elevator to the third floor. Halpern's apartment was at the east end. The butler showed me in, and I waited in the living room. It was a real cozy place about the size of a small rugby field. A door opened on the side, and 200 pounds of Regency oozed into the room like a wet ghost. Good morning. I'm Mr. Taylor. I'm Novak. Where's Halpern? Well, Mr. Halpern is away on a business trip. I'm Mark Taylor, the family lawyer. <laughs> I believe that's the phrase. Oh. Well, I'll drop by later, huh? Uh, perhaps I can help you. I take care of most of Mr. Halpern's business now. Did you know his daughter? Uh, yes, yes. It was quite tragic. That's what I hear. She was a victim of amnesia. She forgot all the details of her home. Must have been a temptation. Did the police ever do anything on her? The police were not advised. Mr. Halpern hired private detectives, but she was never found. Yes, it was quite tragic. You wear your mourning a long way, Taylor. She'd be about 25 now, wouldn't she? Taffy hair, blue eyes, nice figure. I believe she had leanings in that direction. Why, Mr. Novak? I think I may know where she is. You don't know what that would mean to this family, Mr. Novak. You don't know what it would mean to me, Mr. Taylor. Here's a snapshot. Let me see it. Well, Taylor, this is not a B movie. This is a picture of Marsha Halpern. You sure? I don't make many mistakes, Mr. Novak. All right, if you've used up your quota. She's downtown. I'll get in touch with Mr. Halpern right away. No, take your time. She's dead. She... When? Last night, she got sleepy. When? Yeah, that's right. Somebody gave her enough sleeping pills to stock a drugstore. I see. After all these years, to come back, and then this... Uh, it was most... most tragic. Yes, yes, I was about to say that. It'll be a great blow to Mr. Halpin. It'll be a very great blow to Mr. Halpin. Have the police any ideas? A few. Do you know anybody named Hilda? No, why? I'm just sweeping out the corners. When's Halpin due? This afternoon. I'll arrange an... A... Excuse me, please. All right. Hello, this is Mark Taylor. No, that can't be right. Well, when did it happen? Uh, yes. 
Yes, please keep me advised. You ought to wear a purple suit, Taylor. I have bad news, Mr. Novak. Brace yourself. I'm lightheaded. Go ahead. Mr. Halpern was killed in the motor accident last night. His car plunged down a ravine near Sacramento. Mm -hmm. That's very strange. Yeah, that must have been a great blow to Mr. Halpern. Downstairs. All the way down, I had the funny feeling that something was wrong. The way a person feels when he goes into a doctor's office with an incurable disease. It may have been Taylor. I don't know. He seemed all right, but I still had that feeling that something was out of place, like a broken line in a perfect picture. I crossed the street and called Hellman. It was too early in the day because he was as sad as a tap dancer in moccasins. Hellman talking. This is Novak. How's the case? You look better every minute. How's the identification? We're moving slow. So far, we know she's a woman. That's right. Her name's Marcia Halpern. She disappeared in 1941 with amnesia. San Francisco? Yeah. She's the daughter of Emery Halpern. Uh, we'll check with old man Halpern. You better send your best man because he rolled a car and killed himself last night. Where? Sacramento. I got news for you, too. Yeah? We got a statement from that waiter. Who wrote it? He says you brought that girl in for coffee. Also, you were nice and chummy. I knew her for five minutes. With you, that's a lifetime. The guy said you were good friends. That's the way our story's gonna read. You suit yourself. I'm busy. Yeah? Where you going? Same place you are, Hellman, Sacramento. If I didn't move fast, I was deader than a Philadelphia nightclub. When they start taking statements, you can wire for flowers. I called Jocko and told him to check up on old man Halpern's estate. I borrowed a car and drove up to Sacramento. The accident was just outside of there. When I got to the spot, Hellman was already in charge. He's going to make a fight for the job at last judgment. They were down in the ravine and Hellman was beating around the bushes, making more noise than a Venetian blind in a typhoon. Hello, Hellman. Did you find anything? Get your own haystack. I'm busy. Where's the body? You get the blues if you don't see one corpse today. He's up in town. Did you notice those tracks up there in the road? Yeah. Double tracks don't mean a thing. Oh, sure. Maybe two cars fell down and one got lost. Wake up, Hellman. If he drove over the side, he sure had a tough time making up his mind. When you're through on that pipe, I'll send over another. I'm going over to the car. Hellman went over to the car and I started looking through the bushes. I don't know what I expected to find. Maybe an old boy scout... After about ten minutes, I shifted over to the other side and it showed up right near the ground under a bush. Hellman must have seen me because he came right over. Hey, what is it? What'd you find? A handkerchief. Oh. Hmm. That's funny. What's funny about it, too? It's a handkerchief. The old man had a nose, didn't he? Well, he must have loved it then. His hanky's loaded with perfume. Take a whiff here. Yeah. Recognize it? Sure. I don't know about you, but I smell a rat. Things began to move. This was the first break, and Hellman knew it. I went back to town, and I tried to get in touch with Jocko, but he was running up a tab somewhere, so I drove over to see Mark Taylor again. When I got to the apartment, I found out he wasn't in, but the pinch hitter was all right. When she opened the door, I got a nice warm feeling, like a melted cheese sandwich. She was standing there in a dark, silk evening gown. It was strapless, and she had no worries. When she spoke, it was like saying, put another log on the fire. Good evening. Taylor in here? Won't you come in? Sure. Mr. Taylor won't be in for a while. I'm waiting for him myself. 
I see. I'm Pat Novak. Is it urgent? Anything I can do? If it were, you'd get my vote. Who are you? I'm Hilda Travis. I'm a friend of the family. Which family? Would a drink take off the rough edges, Mr. Novak? It might. Good. I'll make one. I brought Taylor a present. How nice. A girdle, maybe? Or am I being catty? No, a handkerchief. This one. Do you like it? Should I? I thought you might want it for a keepsake. I found it in a ditch up in Sacramento about ten feet from Emery Halpern. Poor Emery. Here's your drink. Thanks. Poor Emery. It's full of perfume. You want to smell? That wouldn't do any good. You want to know if it matches my perfume? It's your idea. Go ahead. All right. Now, closer. That's it. See? Yeah. It's early in the evening, Mr. Novak. Don't blow a fuse. I won't until I find out who killed Marcia Halpern. Good luck, for everybody's sake. By the way, the uh, police think you killed her, don't they? Did Taylor brief you? A little. I asked him this morning if he knew a girl named Hilda. He must have forgotten. Yeah, everybody's got amnesia. Just to make things easy, did you kill her? Just to make them hard, did you? I see. Well, just tell Taylor I called. Don't be a savage, Mr. Novak. You haven't finished your drink. And it's raining outside. I'll finish this one. That's good. Sit down beside me here. We'll finish our drinks and pray for a cloudburst. She turned out to be an old-fashioned girl. She had about eight of them before I got out of there. I tried to pump her, but she wouldn't talk about Marcia Halpern. I just became a family friend. After I left, I ducked into a drugstore and started phoning Jocko. I finally caught him at the hunt room. He'd worked his way below the label already. Hello, Patsy. I'm having a wonderful time. Yeah, what'd you find out? I just heard a funny story. It's old. What about Halpern? He barely changed his will after the girl died. The whole estate goes to her. Who's next in line? A fellow named Mark Taylor. That's the new part of the will, drawn up three weeks ago. Good boy, Jocko. So I looked up the dope on Mark Taylor. He's a family friend. It's a new club. Go on. Looks all right. Some funny bank book stuff, though. For instance? Well, he drew 3000 bucks out last month for a Lisbon passage. A girl named Helen Dupre. Maybe she's a foreign cinema discovery. Well, he's no talent scout. Meet me down in Homicide in ten minutes, Jocko. If we're lucky, we'll show Hellman something. What? How to draw to an inside straight. Hurry up and don't stop for a bracer. Well, just don't smell my breath. See you soon, lover. I'd explained everything I could to Hellman when Jocko got there. I went over it for him and sent him out on an errand. He was to meet Hellman and come up to Taylor's apartment. I went on ahead. It was about 11 o'clock when I knocked on the door. Mm, Mr. Novak, so soon. Yeah, I'm coming in. Hello, Taylor. I won't say you're wearing out your welcome, Mr. Novak, but it's getting very thin. You better take time out and pack your bags. Is that nice, Patsy? Because a guy named Hellman wants you for murder. We've been over that once, Mr. Novak. Yeah, but we got a whole new infield this time. Hellman thinks you killed a girl named Helen Dupre. I don't know a girl named Helen Dupre. The bank vouchers say yes. They say you brought her over here six weeks ago. Wait a minute, Patsy. Oh, you made the team too, Angel. They got you all fixed up for old man Halpern's case up in Sacramento. Get out of here, Novak. I left a drink here. Find a bar there. Get out of here. I wouldn't want to jam this gun through your face. Come on in, Hellman. 
you bring him with you? Yeah. Come in here, fella. Is that the girl? Yeah, that's her. Where'd you see her before? Sacramento last night. He's crazy. It's a plant, Mark. Tell him more, Junior. You sure she's the one? Yeah. She was on the road and I seen her at the car with this old fella. Hang on, lady. The road gets bumpy from here on. My lights were out, so I guess she didn't see me. Take this little guy out of here. I got a story. I seen you hit the old fella, then start the car down the bank. I didn't hit him on the head. I told you that, Mark. Yes, you did. Tell him, Mark. Tell him I was here. How can I when you tipped our mitt? That's right, Taylor. Get out while you can. Tell him I was here, Mark. Well, you little fool, don't you know you told them already? You're a bum guy, Mark. You've been a bum guy all along. I keep my mouth shut. I'll give you a chance to talk. I'll tell you about him, Novak. Shut up, you little half-wit. You're all right on the straightaway, but you're a bad guy on the curves, Mark. Keep still, Angel. For a tin-horned punk like you, I'll talk lots. You'd better say it fast. Yeah. You get any prize in the house, Taylor. Take your choice. Are you working for a living, Hellman? Yep. All right, then. Let's go. Yeah. See you downtown, Novak. Is she all right, Jocko? I'm out of practice. Well, Patsy. You like it this way, baby? No complaints. I've always gone first class. I wouldn't like it the other way. Yeah. I could have used a little more time. But I'm not greedy. It's still raining out, Patsy. No. It stopped raining. It's beginning to clear up and over... Come on, Jocko. I'm talking to myself. Well, it seems that Marcia Halpern was dead for years. Somewhere on the other side, a girl named Helen Dupre got the story out of her. She looked a lot like Marcia Halpern, so she waited until after the war and contacted this Mark Taylor. They cooked up a hoax and the pot boiled over. She was supposed to fake amnesia and stumble into the hospital. The pictures in the wallet would be printed. Mark would identify her as Marcia Halpern. The same night they planned to kill the old man the way they did. That way, Helen Dupre and Mark could split the dough. But they figured it wrong. Another girl named Hilda Travers had the story, too. She put the squeeze on Mark, and he blundered. He found out he didn't need a phony Marcia Halpern after all. The new clause in the will gave Mark the dough. So he loaded Helen Dupre with sleeping pills while Hilda gave the old man his last ride. All he had to do was... Wait for the dough and then split with Hilda. A few things went wrong. Sometimes it only takes one. Helen did her part, but she was no Bernhard. And then at the last minute, she knew something was wrong and mentioned Hilda. I kind of began to wonder when Mark identified that picture so fast. After more than eight years, he identified it immediately. And then there was that handkerchief. From there in, it was freewheeling. All we had to have was a witness. Oh, that guy from Sacramento? Well, he was some actor that Jocko picked up in the hunt room. Hellman finally cleaned up the mess. Taylor's in the clink. And of course, 
The girl already picked up her end of the check. Oh, she was nice, too. If you don't mind claw marks. Well, it all worked out, and Hellman's happy. Except that actor keeps calling him up for parts. American Broadcasting Company has just brought you the third of a new series, Pat Novak for Hire, starring Jack Webb. Jocko Madigan is played by Jack Lewis. Inspector Hellman is played by Raymond Byrne. Music was composed and conducted by Basim Ablam. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Jack Webb was off and on as Pat Novak. In between, he was Johnny Madero, Pier 23, and investigator Jeff Regan. That was from Webb's second run as Pat Novak for Hire from February 27, 1949, about four months before he took on his signature role as Joe Friday in Dragnet. We'll round it out with The Haunting Hour next on Skywave Audio Theater. We don't know much about The Haunting Hour, except that it was popular in its time, which would have been 1944 and 45. The title of the series, Promises Something Supernatural, we'll see if it delivers. This week we find ourselves on a cruise off the coast of South Africa. A routine voyage for the vessel, but a small part of the cargo, a very small part, will make that ship sail into a big crime. The name of our story is The Southern Star. It comes to us from a 1945 episode of The Haunting Hour. This is a time of mystery, a time when imagination is free and moves forward swiftly, silently. This is The Haunting Hour. Southern Star. An ocean liner, several days out of South Africa, plows through the Atlantic toward America. Another turn around the deck, Mrs. Ashworth? Heavens no, Mr. Westcott. My goodness, I haven't walked so much in years. If you don't mind, I'll just collapse on one of these deck chairs for a while. Won't you join me? I'd be delighted. Well, only one more day and then America. It's been a fine trip. Yes, lovely. I really enjoyed it. 
Atlantic crossings can be very boring unless you meet the right company. Oh, you've been very charming, Mr. Westcott. Same to you, Mrs. Ashford. There's one thing I regret, though. What's that? I haven't met your husband. Oh, Frederick. Well, he's been keeping to our cabin pretty much. You see, Mr. Westcott, he doesn't want to mix with people very much this trip. Indeed. Why not? Oh, it's not what you think. Frederick isn't antisocial or anything like that. You see, uh... Oh, well. Of course I can tell you. You see, my husband is with Dubois and Company in New York. Dubois? You mean the big diamond importers? Yes. They commissioned Frederick to travel abroad and purchase the Southern Star for a client. Southern Star? Why? Why, that's one of the biggest diamonds they ever took out of the Kimberley mine. Yes. Naturally, Frederick has to be very careful whom he meets this trip. Oh, of course. He's carrying a precious cargo. Personally, I'll stick to a nice humdrum business like stockbroking. I can't stand excitement. Oh, there's really no danger. It's only a precaution. I, uh... Why, here comes Frederick now. Frederick! Oh, there you are, Emily. I was just looking for you. Frederick, I want you to meet Mr. Westcott. I've told you about him several times. How do you do? I'm delighted to meet you, sir. Mr. Westcott's been charming, Frederick. I've already asked him to drop in on us when we get back to New York. Yes, excellent, excellent. Well, my dear, we'd better go down and dress for dinner. Mm. You'll excuse us, Mr. Westcott. Of course. I'll see you both later in the evening. Mm, possibly, yes. Come along, Emily. Emily. Yes, Frederick? You've made a lot of friends this trip. Westcott and others. Well, why shouldn't I, my dear? What's wrong with that? Nothing, but you know what I'm carrying in the cabin. I hope you haven't mentioned it to anyone. Of course I haven't, Frederick. Good heavens, you talk as though I've been associating with criminals. Radiogram, Captain. Just in from communications. Thanks. Any answer, sir? No. Tell Sparks to send these messages, though. Aye, aye, sir. Captain Miller. Oh, good evening, Mr. Randall. What's the weather report? Good. Good. We ought to be in right on schedule. Yes, yes, it's been a nice, quiet trip. Captain Miller. Captain Miller! Yes? Come in. Why, Mr. Ashford. What's the matter? What's wrong? My wife's disappeared. What? Are you sure? Yes, yes. I can't find her anywhere. I was in the lounge late and Mrs. Ashworth had retired to our cabin. When I returned, I found the lock broken. My belongings rifled and my wife had disappeared. And not only that, the diamond's gone. The Southern Star? Yes, but that doesn't matter now. It's my wife, Captain. I've gone all around the deck, asked the stewards, everything. No one's seen her. I'm afraid there's been foul play. The diamond... Steady, Mr. Ashworth, steady. Easy does it. I'll issue an order to search the ship at once. And then we'll take a look at your cabin. Well, whoever forced an entrance into your cabin here, Mr. Ashworth, certainly left it in an awful mess. Tell me, uh, where did you keep the diamond? In my wife's powder box. She kept it in a locked dresser case. It's gone. Well, what happened seems fairly simple. Someone aboard got wind that you were carrying the Southern Star. Broke into your cabin, surprised your wife. Right. Come in. We've searched the ship, Captain. We haven't found a trace of Mrs. Ashworth. You've made an exhaustive search, Mr. Dennis? Yes, sir. We've looked into every nook and cranny of this ship, sir. I'm afraid she's gone. Overboard. Emily. 
Then it's true. She's really gone. I, I'm sorry, Mr. Ashworth. I, I know you want to be alone. But first, there's something I must ask you. Can you give me the names of the people your wife met on this trip? The ones she kept company with? Yes. Yes, I, I think I can. There were at least five I knew about. Uh, Mr. Dennis. Yes, sir? Stand by and take down those names. I want to send a radiogram to the police in New York. Yes? Detective Lieutenant Henry Hinge to see you, Commissioner. All right, send him in. Morning, Commissioner. Well, morning, Hinge. Sit down. I've got a little job for you. What is it, sir? Yeah. Read this radiogram. Just came in from Captain Miller aboard the Lexitania. Southern Star, eh? That's quite a haul. With a cool half million, they tell me. That's right. Now, the Lexitania docks at 3 this afternoon at Pier 17. From here in, it's your baby. And a tough baby, if I know anything about these seagoing crimes. In order to prove murder, usually, you have to produce a corpus delicti. The corpus delicti is always somewhere in the Atlantic. Yes, you're right, Inge. But one thing we can be sure of. That big diamond isn't in the Atlantic. Someone aboard that liner has got it. And hopes to get through with it. Well, Lieutenant Inch, they're beginning to come off the Lexitania. Yeah. Everything settled, Hurt? Yes, sir. We've got a court of the men thrown around the boat. All right. Now, there were five names in that radiogram, Hearn. Be sure you get them all. And find out where every person on that passenger list is staying. Right, sir. Oh, here comes Mr. Ashworth, Lieutenant. It must be him over there by the customs examiner. The reporters are ganging up on him. Gentlemen, please. Please, gentlemen, I have no comment to make. What? And I won't have until I talk to the police. Come on, Ahern. Better rescue the poor devils in that gang of wolves. Right, Lieutenant. All right, there, you guys. Move back. Move back, I say. Let him get by. Stay off behind Yes, I'm Detective Lieutenant Henry Hinge, Homicide Division, taking charge of your case. Oh, well, how do you do? We'd better get off the pier here and go down to headquarters where we can really talk. Just as you say. I don't know how much information I can give you, Lieutenant Hinge. This terrible tragedy, well, I'm afraid it's unnerved me. Naturally, it's a terrible blow. We'll do our best to get to the bottom of it. Mr. Ashworth. Mr. Ashworth. Yes? I'm the customs official inspecting your baggage. There's one item you haven't declared. It's in this large trunk. But I I don't understand. I'm quite sure I declared everything. Well, you are. Now, take a look at this. Wait till I open the trunk cover. Now, have you declared this? Good heavens. It's my wife. for the murder of his wife? No, Commissioner. In fact, I've already released him. But the body of Mrs. Ashworth was found in his trunk. That's true, Chief. But it doesn't follow that Ashworth put the corpse in his trunk. In fact, he would be the last man to do so. How do you come to that conclusion? Well, Ashworth is an experienced traveler. He's crossed the Atlantic several times. He'd be sure to know that the customs inspectors would open his trunk for examination. Would it be logical for him to hide the body there when it would be certain to be discovered? Well, uh, no, it wouldn't. Well, there's a second point, too. 
If Ashworth wanted to dispose of his wife, the easiest way would be to simply dump her overboard during the night. Then there would be no corpse to plague him. Yes, that's true. As I see it, someone's made an awkward attempt to throw a murder rap onto Ashworth. In fact, it's so amateurish, it's almost incredible. Who that someone is, I don't know as yet. There were 1,500 people aboard the Lexitania, and that's going to be quite a screening job. But there's one big break in this case I hadn't counted on. Yeah, what's that? The corpus delicti. It isn't at the bottom of the Atlantic this time, but right down at the morgue. I'm going down there soon and have a good look at it. I always like to see a corpse when there's been a murder. Something you can put your finger on. Yes? Commissioner, this is Sergeant O'Hearn. I hate to put in like this, but I wondered if I could speak to Lieutenant Hinge for a minute. Hey, it's for you, Hinge. It's Sergeant O'Hearn. Thanks. What is it, O'Hearn? Lieutenant, about those five suspects we picked up off of the boat. Mrs. Ashworth's friends. Yes? Well, they're raising the roof. They say you've got no right to hold them any longer. All right, O'Hearn. Get them together and bring them to my office. I'll interrogate them there, one by one. asking me all those silly questions just because I happened to meet poor Mrs. Ashworth on the boat. It's a shame and a disgrace, that's what it is. My husband's a friend of the mayor, and I'll see that you get what's coming to you, Lieutenant Hinge. I'm sorry, Mrs. Jameson. It's just a matter of form, routine procedure. You're free to go now. Giving me the third degree as always a common criminal, as if I knew what happened to that poor woman on the boat. Oh, what a business. What a way to make a living. Yeah. Yes, Lieutenant? There's one more of those ship's passengers waiting, isn't there, O'Hearn? Yes, the fifth and last. Any luck, Lieutenant? No, they all seem to be on the level. Send in the last one, will you? Right. Lieutenant, I wish to register the most violent protest at this unwarranted examination. This is an outrage. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, sit down. Try to make this as brief as possible. Merely a matter of routine. No, you're just off the boat and that you're anxious to get home. Well, well, what do you want to know? Your name? Leonard Wesker. Occupation? Stockbroker. How well did you know Mrs. Ashworth? Not very well. I just met her aboard the Lexitania. We spent some time together and... Now, look here, Lieutenant, you're not implying that, that I... That you what, Fingers? What? What did you call me? Fingers. Fingers Faraday. You ought to know your own name. What? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. So you're a stockbroker now, eh, Fingers? Pretty dull occupation for one of the world's cleverest jewel thieves. Uh, I tell you, my name's Westcott. Don't waste my time, Fingers. I've got a long memory for faces. That scar on the thumb of your right hand hasn't changed a bit. Okay, okay. So you know. What of it? I haven't done anything. Where's the Southern Star? I tell you, I didn't have a thing to do with it. I don't know where it is. Better talk now, Fingers. This isn't just a diamond theft. There's a murder rap that goes with this one. Look, Hinge, you've got to believe me. Sure, I knew about the Southern Star, but I never got a crack at it, honest. I don't know where it is or how Mrs. Ashworth got knocked off. The jury might not believe a man with your record, Fingers. Better talk now. I'm not saying anything. I don't know anything and you can't prove anything, see? All right, we'll put you on ice for a little while. Maybe your memory will come back to you. Our story, The Mystery of the Southern Star. As you will recall, Frederick Ashworth and his wife had gone to South Africa to purchase the fabulous diamond called the Southern Star 
for the New York jewel importing firm of Dubois and Company. On board the liner Lexitania, on the return voyage to America, Ashworth's cabin was rifled, and both his wife and the diamond disappeared. The ship's captain radioed New York police, and Detective Lieutenant Henry Hinge met Ashworth at the pier. The two men were just about to go down to police headquarters when the customs inspector opened one of Ashworth's trunks. It contained the strangled body of his wife. Ashworth is heartbroken over the death of his wife, and the disappearance of the fabulous diamond, the Southern Star, means little to him in his grief. Detective Lieutenant Hinge, in his investigation of the case, has come to the conclusion that Ashworth is innocent of the murder. For Ashworth is a traveled man and knows too well the thoroughness of examination by the customs officers. And Hinge really wanted to dispose of his wife. The simpler method would have been to push her overboard in the night. Of the 1,500 passengers aboard the murder ship, the Lexitania, Henry Hinge questions five who had met Mrs. Ashworth on the voyage to America. From these people, he learns nothing at all. But then a man called Westcott, a stockbroker, is brought in for questioning. And a gleam of memory flashes in the veteran police lieutenant's mind. Hinge remembers the face. He knows that Westcott is none other than Fingers Faraday, one of the world's cleverest jewel thieves. Hinge accuses Fingers of stealing the Southern Star and says to him, And my jury might not believe a man with your record, Fingers. Better talk now. I'm not saying anything. I don't know anything and you can't prove anything, see? All right, we'll put you on ice for a little while. Maybe your memory will come back to you. I tell you, there's nothing to remember. I didn't do it. I swear I didn't. Go off, Fingers. This time we've got a murder on the high seas and the corpus delicti. You know, I've got a funny feeling. That corpse may have something to tell us. You have any idea what it could be? No, no, I tell you... Okay, suppose you cool your heels in the cell while I go down to the morgue and have a little talk with the corpse. Well, Albert, I'm pretty cheerful this morning. Uh, Hello, Lieutenant Hinge. (laughs) You know me, whistle while I work. There's business here at the morgue. Bowman, Lieutenant. Bowman. I got three new customers today and never a complaint. I don't know where I'm going to put them all. We're full up. <laughs> Medical examiner got here yet? Uh, Mr. Adams? Yeah. Uh, no, I ain't seen him. Uh, you and him meeting somewhere here this morning? Yep. Mrs. Ashworth. Ah, oh, she lives right over here in drawer 634. Oh, here's the medical examiner now. Uh, morning, Hinge. Morning. Albert. Are we all ready to look at the body? Yes, sir. I'll bring her right out. There she is. Now, if you gentlemen will excuse me, I have a little work to do. Well, Adams. Hmm. Strangled by a person or persons unknown. Marks on the neck indicate someone with powerful hands did the trick. Victim put up a struggle. Uh, note the bruises on the back and face. Yeah. My guess is that rigor mortis set in about... Uh... Wait a minute. That's strange. Very strange. What? The victim's mouth is shut tight. That's right. Strangled victim always dies with his mouth wide open. Fighting for air. Precisely. 
quite clear that the killer forced Mrs. Ashworth's mouth shut after she was dead. Although, for what reason, I haven't the faintest idea. I think I may have. Adams, when can you arrange an autopsy? Oh, I'm not sure it's necessary. Cause of death is obviously strangulation. However, I could make all the arrangements by tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, eh? I'll be fine. Come in. Why, it's Mr. Ashworth. Yes, Lieutenant Hinge. I... Uh, I'm sorry. The medical examiner and I were just looking over your wife's body. You shouldn't have come here, Mr. Ashworth. Well, I... I came to claim my wife's body for a proper burial. I'm afraid we can't release her now, Mr. Ashworth. But why not? I'm her husband, her nearest living relative. Surely you don't think I wanted to stay in this cold and dismal place among all these other corpses? Lieutenant Hinge, I want my wife to have a decent burial now. It's sacrilege to keep her here. I'm sorry, Mr. Ashworth. Under any other circumstances, of course, you could claim the body. But this is a criminal investigation. We're planning to form an autopsy on uh, Mrs. Ashworth tomorrow. Autopsy? Yeah. Yes, but, but what on earth will that prove? I'll know better when we finish it. Well, I'll not permit it. Do you hear? I'll not permit any such nonsense. I have my legal rights and I'm going to exercise them. Ah, he seemed pretty upset. Yeah, you see, I blame him, though, Adams. Draw all the woman's his wife. Uh, you're all through with my client, Lieutenant? Yes, Albert. All through. Put her away now. Well, this is my last one. Number 634. Out pretty late, huh? <laughs> all the rest of my children are sleeping for the night. Well, in you go now. Presses me more in the morning than it does at night. Yes, me too. I've been in here a thousand times and I can never get used to it. And by the way, Hens, I see by this morning's paper that you've released Fingers Faraday. Yeah. We didn't really have anything on him, except the fact that he was on the Lexitania. He can only hold a man on suspicion so long. Yes, I suppose so. And that crook is capable of anything. Well, here we are. Hmm. Albert doesn't seem to be around. Well, still a little early in the morning. Let me see. Uh, Mrs. Ashworth's body was in drawer 634, wasn't it? That's right. Ah. Here we are. Yeah. Now we'll take off the shroud and... Hinge. Hinge, look. Yes? Why? Why, it's the body of Albert, the morgue keeper. He's been strangled. Where's Mrs. Ashworth? Hmm. Somebody with a grim sense of humor came in and stole the corpse last night. And I think I know who it is. Where's the phone, Adams? Oh, there on the desk. Oh, poor Albert. He was such a cheerful fellow. Operator! Operator! Get me Sergeant O'Hearn, homicide. Police headquarters, at once. In stalking. Oh. Now, look, I told you, newspaper boys, I'd break this case within 24 hours, and I will. That's a promise. Yes, I'll even tell you why anybody would want to steal a corpse. Now, be a nice fellow and leave me alone for a while, will you? I've got a lot to do. Lieutenant Hinge. Oh, it's you, Mr. Ashworth. The newspapers are full of this terrible episode down at the morgue. If you'd have turned over the body to me yesterday, this wouldn't have happened. It's disgraceful, sir. Disgraceful. I demand action. Where's my wife? Suppose you tell me, Mr. Ashworth. 
What did you say? I said, suppose you tell me. You know where she is. Why, why this is absurd. Ridiculous. Is it, my friend? Well, you can't prove one word of this preposterous accusation. Can I? Certainly not. I defy you to try. All right. Let's begin at the beginning with the motive. In the first place, you needed money badly. You lost heavily at gambling and also through bad business investments. Very heavily. How did you know that? Investigated. Routine here at the department. All right, let's go on. Your wife was heavily insured, and you had the Southern Star aboard the Lexitania. They both added up to money. So you strangled your wife, forced the gem down her throat, and closed her mouth so it wouldn't be detected. Then you stuffed her in your trunk, messed up the cabin, and reported to the captain. Am I right? <laughs> You're talking nonsense. I'm talking logic. The trick was clever. Point number one, it diverted the attention of the police, including myself, from you as the killer, just as you figured. Naturally, a man in his right mind wouldn't use the trunk to hide the corpse, knowing that customs would surely open it. <laughs> Go on, Lieutenant Hinge. I find this very funny. I don't think you will later. But to get back, hiding the Southern Star in your wife's throat was a clever way to get it by the customs officer. An almost foolproof way, and it worked. You reasoned that all you had to do was claim your wife's body for burial, take it home, and recover the diamond. When you were balked in this, you entered the morgue, killed Albert, left him in the drawer, and took the body of Mrs. Ashworth away. Very pretty. Very pretty and rather macabre. But you can't prove it. Oh, yes, I can. There's one little detail. One little detail on which a jury will send you to the chair, Mr. Ashworth. And what's that? You were the only outsider who knew in which morgue drawer your wife's body was located. Drawer 634. It would have taken you hours to find it otherwise. You saw the number when you came in to claim the body. And you went straight to it when you returned. No. No, it... It could have been someone else, I tell you. That's not enough. You'll never convict me on that. In speaking. Lieutenant, we found the body. It was buried in the cellar of the Ashworth place here. Good work, O'Hearn. What about the diamond? We got that, too. Found it in a bureau drawer upstairs. Well, that's that. But what about Ashworth himself, Lieutenant? We haven't located him. Oh, that's all right, O'Hearn. Don't worry about him. He just came down to headquarters here to give himself up. Mystery weaves a spell of strangest fascination, charging the mind with doubts and fears. For mystery is a strange companion, a living memory in the haunting hour. A story about a voyage, a diamond, and a deceased passenger. And I think nothing supernatural. A little bit grim the way the diamond was concealed, but otherwise I think no ghosts required in The Haunting Hour. An episode called The Southern Star. Even posthumously, Mrs. Ashworth did have a story of her own to tell about her travels beyond Drawer 634. And Fingers Faraday was innocent, kind of a red herring in the plot in that particular heist. Next week, Have Gun Will Travel, X-1, and some other adventures in sound. 
I'm Norman Gilliland. I hope you can be with me then for Skywave Audio Theater. <laughs>